Hello, welcome to Derp's Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, color identity and class identity in Hearthstone and Magic the Gathering, uh, as well as our failures. But before we do that, Buddy, I want to show the folks at home what it is we do on this podcast. Well, on this podcast, we re- record the audio wrong and mess up an hour and a half episode that we recorded two days ago. But... Never fear, <laughs> we're we're back and better than ever and ready to go. Um, yeah, I, so... I, I would I would like to offer that first that this is entirely my fault. Buddy didn't do anything wrong. I I had a filter on my recording that I, that like has been in there since probably for like a year or more, and I just completely forgot about it. I didn't realize it wasn't recording, so entirely my fault. But sorry, buddy, you were gonna say no worries. Uh, but. Uh, we like to talk about games, and one of the games that we have been playing, and by we I mean Mango has been playing a lot, but I am intimately aware with, because I was, I had a Pro Tour number, like I was a, I was a professional Magic the Gathering player in the sense that like 50,000 people were professional Magic the Gathering Oh, had the DCI card? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you, you get two. the DCI card and you play in the, the, the Pro Tour qualifiers. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I... Uh, we, we are talking about magic. We're talking about color identity inside of, uh, Magic the Gathering. Yeah, and, and not only that, but I also want to touch on the class identity inside of Hearthstone as kind of a compare and contrast. Uh, yeah, I have a lot of, since we kind of seeded this the other day, I have thought about this, like, nonstop while playing Hearthstone. Yeah, and similarly, I, I was, I've been thinking about it a lot, especially kind of like, you know, um... Uh, Hearthstone's a relatively young game by comparison, but even it has some of the like, um, like uh, during the the Mean Streets of Gadgetzan set, it had multi card, multi class cards, um, yeah. and those I think had their own identity. Although I'm not as tuned into those as, as yeah. You I mean, this is something that I thought was so uh, inherently interesting uh, about the difference between Magic and Hearthstone. In Hearthstone, you choose a class and it locks your 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 card pool right you cannot if you choose rogue you cannot run innervate right or Tyrion forging right um if you choose warrior you can't run preparation or eviscerate right like those are rogue cards uh but something that as part of the reason this is on my mind is the new single player adventure that they are debuting for the Saviors of Old Doom expansion, which is releasing pretty soon, is called the Tombs of Terror. And the Tombs of Terror is going to be another dungeon run like experience, but with multi class characters, right? So, like, Reno Jackson is a mage and a rogue. Bran Bronzebeard is a hunter and a warrior, right? And all of a sudden, I was thinking, I was like, holy shit, right? Like, that is, that is the nexus. Of, of difference and contrast, I think, between Hearthstone and Magic, right? In Magic, it's not just that the colors have their identity, right? But that, like, colors have, like, mix and match identities. They have opposites of tracked identities, right? You have kind of, like, the blue-red, who, which are opposite colors on the color wheel, but they both care a lot about spells. So that's how you kind of get, like, this is what a blue-red deck looks like. Um, or, like, this is what a blue-black deck looks like versus a blue white deck and how each of those kind of color combinations also creates its own unique individual identity which i think is very cool yeah and 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 not only that but like the multicolor cards have a kind of identity even to like out i would say even like the three count like there are a handful of three combo cards or three color cards um there's a couple of five color cards four color isn't really that common but like 
the three color cards I think even have kind of distinct identities, right? Like Nicol Bolas is kind of like who's a famous magic character. It's kind of the realm of either all color or red, blue, black, um, and has some traits that kind of live in that space, which I think is very, very interesting. Um, or like even like big mechanics, like Surveil is a very blue black black mechanic, right? Like some of it's in blue, some of it's black, but most of it is in specifically multicolor blue black, which I think is is pretty pretty neat. Um, um, and I, it's interesting to see some of those effects kind of bleed over into Hearthstone. Like I said, with with the kind of multi class cards in Mean Streets of Gadgetin, have they done it since then, buddy? Uh, 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 so the tri class cards, yeah, tri class cards, no. They, okay. have, they haven't repeated that since Mean Streets of Gadgetan. And in Mean Streets of Gadgetan, it was also interesting because, like, the whole idea of it um, was the, like, the shared mechanics between the classes were, like, their own... It's not like you were really picking up too much warrior mechanics, right? Because, like, so, for instance, uh, the, the, the gang... Uh, that had Paladin, Warrior, Hunter. All of the tri-class cards were these hand buff cards that introduced that introduced hand buffing as a mechanic. Right? Paladin also had class cards that were hand buff cards. Warrior also had had class cards that were hand buff cards. Right? So like, it wasn't like the tri-class cards allowed you to dip into another class in order to pick up power that that class uniquely has access to. Right? Like Paladin, for instance, has bad board clear whereas warrior has really great board clear so it's not like you could pick up a tri-class card to add that board clear to your deck because all of those tri-class cards were built around this one specific mechanic of hand buffing and also at the same time right like it was the one specific mechanic of a singleton deck for priest warlock mage and the one specific mechanic of jade for druid shaman rogue Right, and yeah, okay, that, that makes sense. It's almost, that reminds me a bit of the guilds in like the, in Ravinica, which is one of the, one of the more famous blocks now, but I, I feel like the guilds kind of cemented the multi-class, or not the multi-class, the multicolor identities for, uh, for magic, but, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, so, I, I'm, so, p- part of this to me that it seems to be the most interesting part, and we talked about this a little bit when we talked about it the first time, is that the color identities are so strong in magic that, like, you can, like, if you name a mechanic, you can, like, even if, you, I think if you named, like, the effect of the mechanic, you could pretty reasonably put it in the color it was supposed to be, even if it didn't have, um, like the color attached, like even if you, uh, it didn't have like a name attached to it or whatever, you didn't already know about it, right? Like you come right. up with a new so, like, mechanic. Like if I told you, if I said, you know, this card is a, you know, uh, a three mana card and you discard two cards, that's a black spell, obviously, right? Yeah. Like, it well, doesn't have, like, or that, red. that is it just. It might be red, but you know, like it's. Oh, really? It, um, so, so what, what was the effect again? It's just three mana, target player discards two cards. Okay, yeah, that's black. I thought yeah, you said, yeah, like, yeah. draw and draw and discard from your own hand is is red. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what I thought you were saying. But yes, yes, absolutely. Right, like, that's that's definitely black. Um, maybe a little bit of blue. But, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but also, like, like if you, if you made something like that into a mechanic, right? Like, you called it, like, uh, you know, discard fall. Whenever a creature with this tag enters, your opponent discards a card. That's primarily going to be a black mechanic with a little bit of a 
uh, a blue mechanic and maybe a red mechanic, right? Like you, you could, you could feel that a lot. Whereas I feel like because I'll, like there are some things that are very, very much class tied in Hearthstone, right? Like I th- think all mana ramp is, is, is basically Yeah, there's druid. no mana ramp except for the druids. Um, but there are some mechanics that are a little bit more spread, right? Like heal effects are kind of generalist yeah, cards. Yeah. That's something that Paladin, Shaman, and, and Druid, pre- and Priest, priest. all have access yeah. to. Right. Um, and also, so th- this is the funny thing to me, is like, Artifact has its own color identity in Magic, which is, it's, it's not quite colorless, whereas it feels like the, um, like the general pool of cards in Hearthstone are like, they, they don't have the same type of identity, right? They feel like less, like they feel like they're more generalist and less artifact identified if that makes sense do you agree yeah with that? i mean i think i think i definitely agree with that and i think the reason that that is the case is for this like principle that we were talking about earlier right like the inability to splash a color in the way that you might with like magic right like let's say i have a mono blue deck or something but i'm really getting punished by whatever like aggro, aggro or yeah. something like that so i add, add you know i drop a couple of islands, I put in a couple of planes so that I can put in some AoE board clear, right? Like, not much, two or three maybe, right? Most of the deck is blue, but, like, I can I can pick up this thing from another class, by, or I'm sorry, from another color by uh, altering sort of, like, my, my deck, right? As a rogue, if I'm playing a control rogue, right, it's not like I can ever splash for warrior board clear so like warrior taunts right so what i need to do then is look to the neutral set and say okay i'm playing this like you know i'm playing this kind of control war rogue and i need some defensive taunts and so i'm going to find all of that stuff in the neutral set right like these are going to be my sludge belchers or my tar creepers or kind of like whatever you know like sort of whatever else so i definitely think that um i definitely think that the the neutral set is much less identified than the neutral set is in magic. Yeah. Um yeah, uh which it's 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 very interesting to me that they decided to give the neutral set in magic its own kind of identity, which is kind of like the like you know there's some clockwork, there's some like magic item type stuff, there's there's a, it, it's it's there's some like robot type stuff and it's it's a very clear kind of uh there's equipment in there too and vehicles Right, it's it's a, it's a very clear feeling to it. I think they really solidified that when they like they started adding color art colored artifacts at some point, which are like you know nominally artifacts but might cost color, and so you can combine those. You know, like it's almost like a six color, which is just you know, yeah. Um, even at some point there was like a, I think there was a symbol that you had to pay with colorless mana, which is really weird. That was like Eldrazi stuff, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also had like generate colorless mana effects for a while now um which is it's 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 all pretty it's all pretty nuts and i I think it like really defines the game in a way um kind of around around this interplay which which um like i feel like there's not the same like i I think there's another strength of magic that hearthstone doesn't have yet at least i don't i don't think there's the same circle right like like uh in addition to having the class identities, they're they're arranged in the, the circle of five, and they all kind of stand opposite each other, and you can see those effects like working against each other, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, like red stands opposite blue, um, uh, uh, blue stands opposite of red and green, right? And uh, I feel like red in particular um, works against blues, like blues controls tendencies 
right, get kind of, like, dominated by, like, a high aggro red deck. But, like, its spells get countered by blue's counter abilities. Um, it's, like, DD, direct damage spells. Um, it's direct removal by, like, some weirdness in blue, which has, like, it's got, like, bounce effects and whatnot. Um, similarly, direct damage gets countered by by white, which is red's other um, uh, opposite, by having, like, lots of hexproof um, protection effects and healing effects. Um, uh, but I don't really get that sense out of Hearthstone. It doesn't feel like classes are as, as set up as opposite to each other as they are. Um, am, am I missing something there? There, there are definitely some classes that are set up sort of like in in not like opposition to one another, but like for instance, a hunter deck is always going to be aggressive by the nature of like this is this is one of the, this is one of like the problems in a certain sense also with the way that the the classes are designed they also tie into it with a hero power right right so for instance the hunter's hero power of just deal two damage to the enemy player basically means that you could never make a control deck for hunter in a in a real situation right like as a designer because it would just be toxic as shit because the hunter has a built-in win condition in his hero power he just presses the button a bunch and eventually he ticks you kind of like down over time so like there are there are aspects of the class identity in hearthstone that are like definitionally controlled um by the the like the makeup of the cards that are powerful inside of right in like inside of the class and this is one of the reasons that like even though so for instance One of the things that a control deck needs to do very well is value generation, right? Because a lot of the time when you're playing a control deck in Hearthstone, you are trying to outvalue the opponent over time, right? You are saying, I don't really care all that much about tempo. I'm going to let you hit me with everything you have, and I'm going to heal up, and I'm going to play taunts, and I'm going to clear your board, and eventually I'll just have too much value for you to deal with, right? And Rogue generates tons and tons of value. There's all of these Rogue cards that are like, oh, add, like, this card from another class to your hand, right? Add random shit to your hand. Discover, you know, a, a Death Rattle card or any any number of sorts of things, right? But because Rogue doesn't have the defensive tools of healing slash armor gain or taunt minions, it is so hard to build a Rogue control deck that they never materialize. Um, and that happens for all of the different classes in certain kinds of situations, right? Like, paladins have a really easy time going wide on the board and making these kinds of white weenie, like, tokenish strategies. Druids also have a good time making token strategies, right? But something like, you know, uh, mage doesn't do a token strategy like that well. Which isn't to say that they can't be aggressive, right? Aggro... Uh, tempo mage has always been a thing in hearthstone but you know like the the specific kinds of aggressive decks that pop up in one place can't pop up in others if that makes sense yeah yeah no absolutely um also just thinking about it i i feel like like you know if if we use the magic psychographs which i think are are applicable to hearthstone right which are what Mm -hmm. johnny timmy and uh and spike right like i feel like I feel like those individual, like there's some, uh, like like the, I think the the, the psychographs pour over the colors differently. Like there's, like they're, they're more divided. I feel like the psychographs more like the the psychographs are more universal in Hearthstone, if that makes sense, right? Like you like you can't like you can't build a control deck with Hunter 
but you could still probably build a Johnny deck with Hunter, right? Like that. Was oh like, yeah, no, for sure, right? Uh, uh, same thing is true for Rogue, right? Like a lot of like Rogue control decks typically become combo decks because you have to be able to finish out the game. Like you can't just kind of like sit and wait because you don't have those defensive tools. And a combo deck is appealing to a Johnny in the same way that a control deck is. And so, yeah, I think Johnny, you know, uh, I mean, Spike is different because it's kind of like meta dependent, right? But like the difference between a a Johnny and a Timmy and, you know, even like a Vorthos or whatever, um, all of those different kinds of decks can be played across all of the different classes in Hearthstone, right? Like you can make an aggressive warrior, you can make control warrior, you can make a warrior that summons big, fat, giant minions, right? And some decks are a little, like, marginally better, but I would say that every deck in the game kind of has that, uh, you know, has that opportunity um, to, to to fulfill the the psychograph of any individual player. Yeah, and, and you know, you can, you can do anything in Magic, but I feel like, you know, like, Timmy is green most of the time, or, like, or you know, maybe red, but like, you know, red, pure mono red doesn't lend itself well to Johnny like situations. Um, um, I think, I think it kind of, as magic bloats itself, I think the game gets more Johnny like in general. Like this, this is a thing that people, uh, um, that friend of the cast, Jimmy, um, has talked about, um, about how like modern is kind of degenerate because it's just about finding your combo and like, you know, uh, one turn KOing somebody. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but, um, but I think that it's still, uh, how do I want to put this? Uh, like it, it's, it's, it's still, I think divided rather than like being like, you, you, you could still pin psychographs more particularly to colors in, in, uh, in, in magic. Yeah. I like, I feel like it's hard to play a Timmy deck in blue, for instance. Um, um honestly, you might be wrong about like, Blue weirdly has big flyers, right? Like, yeah, it's like I, I guess it's a true. weird way to play blue. Like, I'll admit that you don't usually play it that way, but you could, right? Like, like blue's bombs t- t- tend to be big creatures, um, which are which is weird. Like, its win cons tend to be big creatures um, with fly with like a flying or something on it. Um, uh, at least in like it's, it's, it's like weird beginner raw strategy. It's it's. I don't know. It's, it's it's very interesting design. Speaking of this, I I, I want to highly recommend um, a podcast that I've been listening to lately, which is Mark Rosewater's. It's called like Commute. Uh, Mark Rosewater like basically records an episode on something about magic on his commute to work twice a week and posts them on Friday. Um, it's very interesting because it sounds like you. Pretty sure he's like actually driving to work. It sounds like it. Um, and he talk. He just talks about some his, historical aspect of magic. Um, there's an old episode from like July of 2017. Uh, that's about complexity um, that I think is really valuable if you if you have uh, interesting game design stuff. I actually think you should listen to it, buddy. Um, but his more his more recent stuff is still interesting, right? Like he like for episode six sixty six, he talked about just like demons and their history in the set. Um, also talked about how like full full art lands came out of like the unsets, which is like a thing. It's like oh, I forgot that that was like where that came from right like it's it, it's very very interesting stuff but, it, um, yeah, those are the most valuable get having having full art lands when i was playing uh was such a huge i was because i was playing right around the release of unglued um was such a huge deal like it was a big prestige point uh to be playing with the unglued lands because they were they're really the only thing that were legal they, they um, were they were the only the, the only standard standard legal silver border card um 
and like apparently it moved product and it like so it's so like you should go listen to this episode but apparently what happened was is one of the original artists had this idea and like everybody's like why would you why would anybody want that that's stupid and they didn't do it <laughs> until like the unset and mark rosewater was like i'm just gonna do this and they're like yeah it's the unset who gives a shit right and then it like moved product they're like oh i guess people care about this um and uh and so it drives products so they so they continue to make it right like it was a, it was a big event just in mtga right that um that you uh like uh each week was a different event where you had to win six things and you could get a full art uh land for your for your game for for uh for your online deck which i i thought was really cool um but uh but yeah um that's a little bit away from the color identity stuff um but uh but I, I think it's. I still think it's. So, do you have a favorite like color? Oh yeah, uh, it's blue. Um, oh okay, fine. Fuck you, mango. <laughs> steal my color. Well, I mean, I, I feel. I feel like the type of stuff we do, which is like this deep analysis, lends itself well to blue because blue's like arcane bullshit and like alternate win cons, which is kind of like inherently interesting. Um. Uh, I do, however, have a tendency to like pull weird. Like, while, like, there are, like, explicit alternate win cons in blue and sometimes black, sometimes white. Um, I mean, sometimes every color, but, like, it's, like, mostly blue. Um, like, finding weird alternate win cons that are, like, you know, like, a weird way to get, like, a normal win con, right? Like, uh, like, uh, like, I built a deck recently that's, uh, based around, um, uh, there's this card called Divine Visitation, which um, any token you would generate instead instead of generating as it would be is a 4-4 angel with vigilance, right? And so, like, white and red have a lot of weenie generation. So you generate weenies instead of being weenies. They are 4-4 angels with vigilance. Um, and so, like, that's, like, it's not that weird, but it's a, it's, it's a little bit of a weird alternate win condition. And you can find those kind of everywhere, right? Like, my first stab back into magic in college was a red-green Valakut deck, which is basically, like, free lightning bolts when you put down mountains at a certain point um which is also weird like um but yeah blue is probably a, and you, you similarly you're, you're also a blue fan yeah mostly because i'm a control fan and uh and blue has the best access to i mean like there there, there are no counter spells in 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 hearthstone but in magic i like counter spells i always thought were like a key key defining feature of control and so it's like you know playing playing any control deck without blue which i you know i did like i had a green uh i had a green white control deck um that was a variation on like uh like one of the top decks at the time was a blue white control deck but i just found that that blue white control deck was getting run over by goblins way too easily um because there was a there was a goblin card that had protection from blue that I can't remember what it was called, but it was insanely gross and really powerful. <clears throat> and so I got I took all the blue cards out of that deck and I replaced them with green cards, specifically rampant growth, so that I could rampant growth on uh, turn two or whatever, and then wrath on turn three, um, because because otherwise you die right like if you don't clear the board you die on turn four to those goblin decks um but yeah like playing blue is just is is very much my kind of like control value oriented sort of uh sort of play style right drawing a lot of cards finding stuff that's like tricky 
and you know spells that do wonky things i've always really liked bounce spells also which is like mm. a blue thing yeah, um very heavy blue. So, bounce is a bigger deal in hearthstone this is an interesting thing that i think about sometimes bounce is a bigger deal in hearthstone um than it is in magic just because like in magic i think you kind of run your hand out of value quicker um specifically because the uh like the proliferation of lands in your deck which are valueless cards so like you are in hearthstone you are always drawing value every turn in magic you are definitionally drawing like whatever it is 0.6 value a turn because sometimes you're going to draw a land which has no like inherent effect on the board it just like empowers your ability to play stuff um I mean, that's so, not entirely true. Like, there are effective lands, but yes, yes. That is, yeah, that is yeah, mostly no, sure, true. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Like, anytime you draw, like, a basic island or whatever, right? Like, that is, you know, like, something that something that pros will do or, like, talk about doing is, like, they will get to kind of six or seven mana and hold lands in their hand as though they are spells just to, like, psych out the opponent. Like, oh, does he have the answer kind of thing. In Hearthstone, you never have to kind of, like, you never have to deal with that. Um, so... Uh, so bouncing stuff but like yeah so like almost all of those cool little blue mechanics right counter spells drawing cards bouncing creatures you know like flying stuff and unblockable stuff right like all of that has been uh right up my alley for a very long time so yeah blue has always been my favorite color so so i i I wonder right um like i wonder if bounce is a more important mechanic in hearthstone because like battle cry is like a named effect right there are plenty of enter the battlefield effects in magic but they don't have a keyword right whereas they have a keyword in hearthstone and so i wonder if that like like kind of like on a design level if it's like you know well if it's a keyword that means it's like more accessible to the designers to use does that make sense yeah, I mean, so the the reason that bounce is more important in Hearthstone is because people tend to have more stuff in their hands, right? right? So, like, when you are bouncing something back to their hand, they are already, you know what I mean? Like, most players will have more stuff in their hand than they can play out in a turn. Oh, okay, right? I see. Yeah. Um, and so when you bounce something back to their hand, they are still sitting on, right, like, if you have a, especially if you have a deep, like, let's say you have a six-card hand and you're playing, like, a mid-range deck, right? Those six cards have a, you know, have a total of, like, 30 mana between them or something kind of along those lines. So bouncing his six-mana Savannah high main back to his hand, he just, he can't just, like, replay that for free. Right, because you cap out at 10 mana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard yeah, because you cap out at 10 mana yeah. and stuff like that. And so, like, you're, you are you are making kind of these tactical decisions about what you're keeping in your hand what versus what you're playing. In Magic, it's a lot easier to sort of, like, empty your hand onto the board. Right, um, right. And if somebody bounces something, you just replay it for free in the next turn. Yeah, yeah, no, I've 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 definitely been there. I've lost some game. Like, uh, there's a blue card in standard right now. It's called like Flood of Tears, which returns um, every all cards on the board to their owner's hands. Um, and if you return four or more of your own cards, you get to play one again. Um, but I've had to just use it when I couldn't do that because I just needed to clear the board. And like, it buys me like a turn, but like not nearly as much as it would buy you in Hearthstone. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they rotated Vanish out of the core set because. Uh... It was such effective mass removal for rogues um, 
just being able to to vanish the board and like people you know like you vanish the board and people play stuff in the next turn and you still have to kind of like have an answer for it or whatever like vanish still isn't quite as good as as brawl um there are also some other stuff like in hearthstone um persistent effects and being able to get around persistent effects with a sap effect is really powerful right like aggro decks run sap a lot of the times because like let's say you're playing a control deck and they have a board they have lethal on board right and you're like oh well this is easy i'll play my big fat taunt creature now they have to run their whole board into my taunt creature and it's effectively a board wipe they just sap your taunt creature for two mana and win the game do you know what i mean um whereas yeah. uh you know the the ability to kind of like right like the same ability but that is just destroy a target creature that's five mana so it's a lot more expensive and you know you're just using it to like push in for face why why would you need to to put assassinate into your deck over sap that kind of thing yeah huh yeah no that makes yeah i, I wonder how much kind of like the like the the the, the you know the taunt slash ability to attack creatures directly thing features into the, the class identity or the the color identity like difference um oh yeah 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 i mean th- that's another thing that i find as a big difference between hearthstone and magic in magic i felt like my creatures were more um robust uh which is to say that like they would last multiple turns in a row uh yeah well that's because creatures... you don't have to block it's harder yeah, to yeah. destroy them and they also heal right like they don't like yeah. like they don't permanently tick down health like, so, you know, when I play something like the Lich King, right, or, like, Ysera, who have a persistent, at the end of every turn, right, like, add a card to your hand or whatever, it is good to get two ticks out of that. That's most of the time what you're going to get, right? You'll get your first tick with it, and maybe it will survive into your second turn, but the ability for the uh, the enemy to trade into your guys uh, just like really makes it that it, it just makes it so much harder to keep uh, keep creatures on the board for like prolonged periods of time. What it really comes down to in Hearthstone in a lot of cases is cycling, right? Like you you drop your one drop and then they play something and then you value trade your one drop into their two drop or something and play your own two drop and so you're kind of doing this like ship of Theseus with your own board if that yeah. makes sense, where you're trading down your one two three cost mana stuff but you keep playing more stuff four five six on the board so your board on turn two or three is still two or three creatures but those two or three creatures have changed over time um whereas in magic like when you have a powerful creature with an effect that like you want or you need you can just kind of play him right and maybe he has a you know like maybe it has an activated ability or something kind of along those lines but like yeah you don't have to block Right, you you know you can just kind of sit there, especially if you're in control of the game, and just kind of be like, okay, well, you know, here's my here's my dude, here's his effect, right? Tetsuko Umezawa, fugitive creatures you control with power one or less can't be blocked. Well, I want that effect for whatever fucking reason, so I'm gonna drop this guy and you know uh, let his like let his ability just stick stick on the on the board for a while, um, especially because in Magic, like. You all you also need to use your removal typically on like more active threats than that, right? Like it's tough yeah. to go after the one three or whatever, even if it is like an important piece compared to like the four four attacking your face. Yeah, although the um the other half of this too is that like there's less there's less desire to cycle the magic too because there's no board size, right? Like you can like, not only is it easier to keep him alive because you don't have to block, like, you know, you don't have to accept a fight, 
Um, but also like it's not like he's taking up a space, right? Like he he can he can just sit there and like you can expand infinitely around him on like Hearthstone, which is like a seven cre- yeah. seven creature maximum, right? Seven creatures, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, we were gonna make this a shorter episode anyway to make up for the fact that um, we need to get it out late. Um, by the way, I'm going to be tacking that other episode on at the end of this. It's not entirely legible, but if you get something out of it, enjoy it. But, buddy, how was your week? Um, all of your stuff is very clear in that episode, by the way. So uh, if people want to listen all the way to the end of that episode, you'll hear about your some of our thoughts on WoW Classic and your thoughts in particular. But you said you wanted to bring up some more stuff about it. So Yeah, so we, so I've been playing a lot of WoW Classic. I mean, I've been thinking about it. Like, it is constantly on my mind, kind of. the uh, There is a lot of, like, the current meme, right, is you'll be playing Classic and someone in general chat will start complaining about retail and people will start posting it it happened a lot in the first couple of days it's kind of like gone away but people would just start posting classic good retail bad uh, votes to the left um but i am becoming it's becoming more and more clear kind of like the strengths and weaknesses and this is always how i've seen it right like i think classic is a different game and it it has a different sort of appeal but the interesting thing is kind of like i'm now in a position where i'm digging into the specifics of what that appeal is and how it's kind of formed. Like, so far, something that you'll hear a lot is, like, the sense of community is much higher um, in Classic than it is in Retail, which I think is true, right? And people will point to a couple of different things as, like, the, you know, like, the source of this. Um, so, for instance, folks will say things like, you know, they added the looking for dungeon tool, so you no longer needed to go to, to trade chat or whatever, right? And say, you know warrior lfg black rock depths or whatever it is that you're that you're like looking for a group for or whatever right like you have to you just click a button and it automatically places you into a group you don't have to like talk to somebody or whatever and you get in that group and that's like the death of the community on the server but i actually think that that's really untrue specifically because a lot of the high-end content in world of warcraft that er, retail that people play is stuff like raids and mythic plus and both of those have the same kind of like you are a tank and you're looking through the group finder and you're whispering leaders and saying oh here you know like this is my these are my credentials in a way and they invite you or whatever you tell them an eye level or something kind of along those lines um and you get and you get your invite so i think that that functions the exact same what i don't think functions the exact same are the specific ways in which like questing and grouping in world content does and what i mean by that is like something that you'll be seeing in a lot of uh like wow classic interactions right is you go to an area to like farm mobs somebody else is in that area that player invites you to a group and you accept right and now you are temporary I mean, maybe there's a little chit chat but like you are temporarily kind of like working with this person you want to kill however many fucking gnolls or whatever it is and you get your gnolls and you leave right and um and that's something that can happen in retail right but it doesn't happen as much. And so I was thinking about that. I was like, why? Like, what is the what is the specific difference? And it, the answer is the tagging system, right? 
when I tag a mob in Classic, I'm the only person that can can loot that mob and get quest credit for killing that mob, right? But if I'm in a group with somebody and I tag that mob, you, that person in the group with me, also gets quest credit. So there's this kind of, like, external motivator to have you group up with people when you're doing, like, the kill X number of guys kinds of quests or whatever. And especially there's this, like, external motivator when it's, like, kill X number of guys for, you know... Uh, the, you know, like, for just a, a bounty sort of system, right? Like, you just got to kill 50 bears or something like that. But the interesting thing is that the group loot system will actually made it make it even harder when you're in a party like that. So if you need to get eight Defias handkerchiefs or whatever it is, the only one Defias handkerchief will drop per mob and each of those mobs will be assigned to a player and only one of them will be generated so if you're in a group of five people and you have to kill eight handkerchiefs that's 40 handkerchiefs that you need to generate by killing like guys but that's still advantageous because that's five people tagging mobs and killing them at a rate that's much quicker right than if you were just like alone and killing mobs kind of like all on your lonesome and we could just like keep going because there are so many other like little pieces to this right like in in um battle for azeroth in retail right like because you and i can tag a mob together i can help you take a, a mob even across faction right if a group of alliance show up and are, t are attacking a rare i can also attack that rare and get my own stuff i have no incentive to group with them in order to get like the quest rewards or whatever respawn rates are fast enough if i'm in a group with somebody and i kill a mob both of us will get the quest items that that mob drops so it'll ge essentially generate like those excess uh those like excess quest items and so what i realized was that it wasn't really like there wasn't any one thing which is how everyone was talking about it right like oh it's this or oh it's that that like changed it is actually kind of like all of these small side effects from the very legitimate quality of life changes that got implemented into world of warcraft over time because like i feel like if you if you pitch someone right you pitch a game designer on the the tagging system in wow classic they would say well why the fuck would we do it that way right like aren't you just like turning this into an unbearable grind for players which is true i mean it is an unbearable grind if you are doing it alone but it has this the side effect of encouraging you to to group up and team up with other people um in order to get to uh whatever kind of like end state you're looking for and that is the source of the like the 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 community that everyone has been talking about and asking for in like wow classic i also think part of this is just um like population like i, I want to add this as a small caveat like th this gets discounted a lot and i don't think that the discount makes a lot of sense but people will say things along the lines of like oh well it's just because there are a limited number of classic servers which is true everybody's starting at level you know like one and it's like new content right the, and when you get to level 60 people will be right like people will be doing the exact same sorts of things and i get and i think that that has like that has a piece to play um but it is the it is specifically that like that nexus thing of the different interactions that i thought was the most interesting that i wanted to highlight yeah and so I, I think I think I agree with you mostly, but I, I do want to highlight that I think that there is a difference that you're missing from, you know, you talk about like whispering means it's mostly the same. I think the thing you're missing there is that um, you can't really be legendary on a server anywhere. And what I mean by that is like, 
um, I don't remember any of the names now, but they're like on the old servers. You used people used to know who like the hot shit on the server was, right? Like people would have reputations, and that's so, there's some of that still in retail, but it's not nearly as much as it was. I think that's the thing you lose when you do group finder, right? Like you whisper your credentials, so, okay. but you never get to a point where somebody like recognizes you and says, "Oh, I know who you are." Right or like you know if he's call- if that person is calling for people to be like oh this is going to be a good run because he's a reliable person or whatever. So I so I don't think that's true. I think that okay. is a result of a little bit of like shallow interaction with the game. In a, in a certain sense, like they the, a, a middle band got opened up right with of like group finder raid finder kind of like content. And so if you are somebody who's playing World of Warcraft kind of like casually and that's kind of your capstone, that's that's whatever, right? But like there are still like on Warcraft logs, I can still look up who the very best prot warrior on my server is. And like we know famous people on on the server because we know the guilds right like sanctuary and the grim and you know on like the alliance side and you know oh like mag police is a guild that has a really bad reputation because their one guild leader is like a, a huge jerk and will like constantly shout at people when they screw up guild mechanics right but like also mag police is like the number one guild on the server all that stuff is very like readable there was a time where i was the number one arms warrior on my server um and i was really proud of that and i kept telling people about it um because it was i felt really prestigious um and I, so, so I definitely think that stuff is there, but it just happens at a higher level, like a like a higher kind of like wavelength. Of, but but I think that's part uh, of like the problem, right? Like with the system, if you were a casual player, you would still see that when you were in town, right? You, like you'd see people talking in town, which doesn't happen as much anymore, right? Like that's all stuff that's there if you're like in that sphere. But it's like oh, largely I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Like, I think the biggest death to the group finder system um, is like general chat, right? Because you yeah. no longer have people sitting in general chat saying LFG for like this, this, and you know, and as much as I think that it is a good thing that the group finder exists because it does make it easy, right? I'm on a quest, you're on a quest. All I do is I type in the quest name, and we can group up immediately or whatever else kind of thing. Um, it definitely does remove some of that, like, you know, like, like Twitter feed aspect to general chat in, in any individual, uh, in any individual zone. Yeah, no, that, that makes, that makes total sense to me. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a tough, it's a tough, it's a tough thing to recreate because it's based on things not being great. And like, yeah, I would, I would. Like, I feel like I wish there was a better way to kind of generate that kind of organic community sense without sacrificing kind of quality of life features, but I'm not convinced you can. Um, yeah, like, part of me thinks, like, okay, let's say they do remove, like, the group finder or whatever. Like, are we too far gone? Like, this is actually something that happened in Classic. Someone made an add-on for the group finder that was essentially the functionality of the group finder in retail. Um and people started downloading it in the beta, and they had to pull the functionality because they decided that, you know, like, that wasn't really what WoW Classic was about. Yeah, um, no, that makes total sense to me. Yeah. like, And so, yeah, like, it's a little bit of, like, a, you know, like a water finds a crack sort of, uh, sort of mentality. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder if the right answer to this is, like, theme park MMOs just can't do that without sacrificing usability. Like, I feel like Sandbox and most still have the, the, the capability of this because it's so much more freeform, right? And so, like, you don't need to, like, there's, 
not really dailies or like the equivalent, right? Like every theme park MMO has their kind of equivalent of dailies and like other stuff, right? Like the equivalent of dungeons or whatever and all this content that you kind of need a group for that you want to kind of find. Whereas sandbag MMOs are kind of like much more freeform and so they don't need those structures. Um, and like you couldn't even use those structures if you wanted to really. Um, not in the same ways at least. And so they kind of more naturally breed that community environment, which I think is maybe why like there's there's a handful of like uh of, of projects out there kickstarter projects that have been funded to try and bring back that kind of thing um because like people say classic wow because that was the game that like everybody played but maybe the answer is really like you don't miss classic wow so much as you miss like everquest and dark age of camelot um but uh, you know that's a question that can be answered by you know crowfall and uh camelot unchained or whatever yeah i mean i definitely think that that is uh that's kind of like an an insightful piece of analysis i guess (laughs) you know it's something that also comes up when it comes to like talents like people also talk a lot about the talent pool uh and the talent point system as something that like oh this is you know it feels so good to do talents and like it does in a weird, like, sort of, like, Skinner Box brain way, but I know that the talent system is actually not good, right? The talent system is, you just look up what the best talents are, and, and so, I don't know, I, I find it, I find it, uh, a tough thing to sort of, uh, balance and get to the other side of. Yeah, um, so I, I feel like you could have a very kind of weird discussion about, like, is it actually not good if it's producing maximum joy? Because that's kind of the point in the first place, right? Yeah. Um, like if that skitter boxiness is making you making making you feel nice, maybe then it is actually better. Which is a weird way to think about it, but I think it's it could be true. Um, but uh, uh, I think that might be about it. Since you know we we this is a shorter thing. Did, did you want to talk about anything else before we? No, that was up? that was everything I wanted to cover. All right. Well, if you'd like to email us what you think about uh, color or class identity or wild classic, email us at subversplaygame at gmail.com. You can follow us at uh, twitch.tv slash subversplaygames. Subscribe to us on Patreon at um, uh, patreon.com slash subversplaygames. Buddy, you had a thing from Akupara that you wanted to promote. Yeah, the thing from Akupara that I wanted to promote is that we are currently running a fan creation contest, which is like fan art, you know, fan fiction, anything along those lines. Uh, Our new game coming out uh, later this year, Mutazione. Uh, If you make something in relation to the game, you'll be entered to win a key from the game. So very cool uh, way to see the stuff that we have been working on. I would definitely recommend Mutazione to all of my friends and everybody on the cast – Spoiler alert, I work for the company, so of course I do. Um, uh, or, I guess, disclosure alert? <laughs> it's not really yeah. a spoiler. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, sh- I should have done this, too. I, I I have stock in Hasbro, so take that to advice if you're going to play Magic. Um, yeah. That also got lost in the last episode. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I'm going to tack that on to the end of this. It's half legible, but he's fully legible. We had an interesting and very fun discussion about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. If you can bear it, I recommend at least trying to follow along for a little while. Um, But that's everything we have, uh, I guess, until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners. Hello, welcome to some Derps Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. I am a special guest, Greg.
And today we're going to talk a little bit about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Before we do that, buddy, why don't you show the folks at home what it is we do on this podcast? Well, it's pretty simple. On this podcast, we like to talk about games. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is maybe the farthest afield we have ever gone in terms of a podcast topic. But it is a movie, and we cover movies. It's Quentin Tarantino. He's a... You know, he's, he's, he's a, he's a guy. Uh, I don't know. Really. It's just, this was a good movie. I actually feel like this summer has not had very many movies, um, that I think of as being very good or that really like stuck with me. Um, and so I just like wanted to like take a minute to, to fucking talk about like my boy, Quentin Tarantino coming back from the dead. Not only that, but we had, uh, this unique opportunity by, uh, brother Greg is visiting me. And so, uh, and he's, he's. The film buff. Uh, how would you describe yourself? Uh, a working professional. Uh, yeah, I mean, wait. Would you describe yourself? Do you like? Do you think of yourself as a film buff? Yeah, you know, it comes with the territory. You know, talks about movies, working, part of what I do. Right, I screen right, all day. Sure. So. Fair enough. <laughs> um, but yeah, and it was a movie that we had all seen. We, 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 you and I had talked about doing this for a while, but we were like, yeah, we've kind of passed the window. But you know, we we got this special opportunity to make it. Plus, we're uh, uh, so. I feel like the wall of ideas is slowly starting to dry up after four years. Yeah, so. after two hundred episodes, <laughs> uh, there's you know we 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 have comprehensively explained games. I don't think there's anything else to say. Yeah, anyway, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood um, is for folks who have not seen it is a is a sort of day in the life movie, which I typically hate, and I've talked about this on the cast before. Um, about three individuals, right? The first one is Rick Dalton, a 1950s Western actor who is just now realizing that his uh, heyday as a leading man is kind of coming to an end and he is entering kind of the swan song of his career. Rick's kind of like paid best friend slash stunt double, uh, whose name escapes me off the top of my head. What was Brad Pitt's name? Character. I think of him as Brad Pitt. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> uh, I, it's I, funny because he's the best person. He's like the best actor in the fucking movie. Um, Cliff Booth is his name. Like- Cliff Booth is the is the paid best friend. He's the he's the stunt double for, for Rick. He lives in a trailer out by a Los Angeles uh, drive-thru, which I have actually been to that drive-thru. There's a lot of actually like neat little Los Angeles tidbits here that I like kept picking up on. Um, even though they did that thing where they like drive through, they like, they, they cut between like 20 miles apart, like sides of town. Um, and, uh, and the third character is Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate, um, the promising actress who was murdered by the members of the Manson family in 1969, um, when she was eight and a half months pregnant, really gruesome, brutal, uh, brutal murder. And, um, and we will be talking about spoilers, but I do want to just kind of start off by saying that I think that this is a really fantastic movie. Uh, it was one of those films where I came out of it immediately after and be kind of being like, what the, what the, what the fuck what was that about? Um, but once I kind of sat on it for a couple of hours, I got back into the, I got, I got it, it, it revealed itself to me maybe i i guess i could say um and i was like oh this is good this is a good movie good job well done quentin tarantino um and so i would definitely recommend it for folks uh if they 
if if you guys haven't seen it, I will say that this movie is actually pretty spoiler proof in a way. This isn't a movie that I felt like hinged on plot twists and turns, right? Like we talked about um, Bad Times at the El Royale earlier this year, which was very much a movie that like you should absolutely go in blind because it is it is very like twisty and turny. Uh, but the nature of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood being about like a famous historical moment kind of oddly saps the movie of its tension and drama but provides it a different kind of tension and drama because it's like it's sort of more character focused than that um yeah i mean i think there's one spoiler that's kind of important but you know we can avoid that um i don't want to draw any comparisons that would that would um okay yeah for sure uh but uh but yeah i think i think you're most i think most of the plot is most spoiler proof um, I would recommend that people who hadn't seen it and don't know anything about the Manson murders read a little bit about the Manson murders. I did not know enough. Um, I still enjoyed it very much. I still would recommend it. Um, I thought it was very weird, but like afterwards, going back to some of the Manson stuff makes all, some of the stuff make a lot more sense. Like, mm. like I recognized that the cult was supposed to be Manson-like. I thought it was supposed to be like a generic stand-in. I didn't realize he was actually supposed to be exactly the Manson family. Um, so I would I would do some light research. Yeah, I had the benefit of, uh, I had the benefit of, I guess I, cause I took like a a film history class in college or whatever that just like went through all this stuff. So I actually knew the, the, I'm, I'm very familiar with like the Manson murders in a way that I feel like maybe if you're not that kind of a guy, like Quentin Tarantino is playing to that sort of audience, but that might be like less prevalent than, than one might think. Greg, what would you, um, you know, I might have the controversial. I didn't love the movie, but um, uh, I knew about the man. About the man. Um, but as an overall movie, you know, a lot of things that I enjoyed about it from like you know technical perspective and kind of like the whole love letter to Hollywood kind of thing, like aspect ratio. Good. Uh, I think that's good for spoiler stuff, right? Did you have anything else you wanted to throw in, buddy? No, no, no. Let's do this. All right. Spoiler warning. If you haven't seen it, go see it. Turn off the podcast. Um, or if you don't care, keep listening. But uh, this is your... Um, and in all aspects of this probably also some other Tarantino films, too. So uh, if you've been holding out on seeing, I don't know... Uh, Inglorious Bastards. Bastards. Yeah. Django. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, or like Django Unchained. Uh, uh, go see those, I guess, before you listen care but uh that's actually probably a good place to start um where like where where do you guys fall when it comes to tarantino movies right like do you have a favorite tarantino movie what is it like that kind of stuff um i mean ones like probably pulp fiction classic oh and glory um how people um i i don't i don't love all tarantino Stuff like I liked Hateful Eight for a lot of reasons again the tennis, but I thought it was sort of like pacing was slow, and I, you could say that about I felt that way about once Hollywood too pacing was, um, but yeah, I guess those. Yeah, I, I think well, I, I want to make a comment about like the work print being like four hours or whatever. I actually felt like this movie had a lot cut out of it, um, especially that like kind of what would I call that? Like the end of the second act kind of like like time jump or whatever. I felt like there was a lot there that they probably cut out, which is why they brought in Kurt Russell to like kind of 
narrate things if that makes sense yeah um, I, I i would still even though i still think i agree with Greg that the pacing was kind of so like the, like so kind of on this quentin tarantino point right like i feel like a lot of this movie was playing against my expectations of what happens in a quentin tarantino movie right like um and maybe this is just because i didn't know anything about the manson family but like there were there were moments that i was expecting to turn into quentin tarantino violence that didn't i felt like that was intentionally playing with the expectations also yeah that's like spawn ranch right yeah yeah spawn ranch yeah that's that that part was very interesting to me because i knew that he wasn't dead right like that's that's another piece of the manson history right like that he was like directing members of the cult to have sex with this guy so that they could all live on the ranch for free um and so i was like he's not dead he's not one of the people that gets you know like he's not part of the manson murders um so what like where where is all of this tension kind of coming from and building to and that that was exactly the answer right right george spawn is still alive and uh and he's completely fine with this arrangement and I, well so there so, was like so cliff booth is an ahistorical character right like he's right. the part around which events can bend right cliff and uh and Rick, right yeah things can be different with regards to them because they're not real people. Um, and, you know, I guess you kind of look for the Inglorious Bastards moment to happen when it does. And it happens at the end, like it does in Bastards. Because um, there's like the, there's that same tension in Inglorious Bastards, right? Like, what's going to happen with this Hitler plan? We know they can't kill Hitler, and then they kill Hitler, right? Like, what's mm-hmm. going to happen? Like, how, how are these characters going to interact with this historical timeline? And I think part of that is that expecting you to have seen inglorious bastards and know that sometimes he does this kind of thing where he fucks with stuff and trying to figure out where he's gonna fuck with it um along with the violent stuff right like i feel like you could get somebody to like be really angry that like this this random like stunt double beat up bruce lee right like like bruce lee's idolized in a lot of ways by uh by a lot of people and to, to kind of portray him as kind of a jackass that gets ass handed to him uh is, is kind of sacrilege that's actually been kind of uh, in like the online world. I'm, I think it's like Bruce Lee's kids or something got really oh, mad yeah. about it. Oh, yeah, that's, that's and it. they like published an op-ed like "fuck you, Quentin Tarantino, you dick," <laughs> right? Like, uh, yeah, um, even pissed. though, yeah, um, we'll, we'll, I can dive into it a little bit. I've just I've, I've uh, uh, read a little bit about this. She got really mad because she felt that her father was portrayed the wrong way and that nobody got to her to kind of talk to her about what was going on. Um, I guess one of the other things, um. Was the look with the uh, sunglasses, hands thing? That was after. Um, Tiger Hidden Dragon. Um, Enter the Dragon. Enter the Dragon. Wow, yeah. Crouching Tiger Hidden um, Dragon is uh, twenty-five years too late. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, um, Enter the Dragon, like that's that look is associated with that era after that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess everyone was up about that. That's going on there. Um, but there's a whole argument back and forth, and the fact that apparently he was kind of a dick like people talk about that all the time um and the argument the other way too is that flashback from Cliff, right? like yeah it goes from him on the roof, yeah. so one regard like sure might have actually been a dick maybe not wasn't a dick but like cliff memory and of course cliff is gonna nassau and not win the fight but that's the one yeah and, and you have like that look is like the iconic bruce right like yeah. if you're trying yeah. to, to sell to an audience you can't have bruce lee Right, like you, you kind of want to go with the kind of thing, even if it's slightly anachronistic. 
Yeah, that, I have definitely heard something uh, kind of uh, along those lines. Like, apparently, like, Bruce Lee was kind of, uh, you know, like, a little bit of a jerk in the, the early days. Um, and, and he, like, he talks about that in, like, interviews and stuff. That's just, like, something that I saw, like, get quoted on Twitter in this whole, like, you know, whatever, Bruce Lee, like, discourse. Um, I think, you know, like, if there are if there are indulgences in the movie, I definitely think that, like, there are pieces uh, that kind of look like that one. Um, but I also feel like it was, ho- it was so hard to me to think of stuff that I didn't like and that I would have cut. Do you know what I mean? Um, I don't know. Like, Italy? Yeah. Yeah, like, there did seem to be, there, there were a lot of moments which were, like, Look, we, like, inserted Leonardo DiCaprio into old film footage for, like, not a lot of purpose. I think I get on board with that criticism, right? Like, like putting him in The Great Escape was neat, but, like, perfluent. No, it was, it was to demonstrate the lie he was telling. What? He was telling... Okay, so Timothy Oliphant said, I heard you were up for a part in The Great Escape. And Leo was like, ah, you know, like, I was being considered whatever the that there was footage of him in the great escape implies that he wasn't being considered he was cast in the role and then recast in shame which is why he's lying and hiding that information oh see i I took that as like like him imagining it like that was not clear to me that that's what that was supposed yeah i mean i guess it is kind of unclear but that was the implication that i got especially the kind of surrounding his overall kind of like anxiety around his place in his career and in hollywood right like the idea that he's he's playing down this moment um because it is a moment of shame i felt like that very much fit for fit for the character uh but uh but yeah but i i do i think it's general could have cut like a lot of like him being like like a lot like a lot of the time they spent with the Italy stuff, right? Like that could have been cut mm. down a, a bit. Um but I, and I definitely agree with you. Pacing was low. Um that doesn't like your point, it doesn't mean you need to cut anything maybe like the the, the, the wasn't organized right. I, I don't know not, enough about the process to talk about like to, to talk about that, but it seems like yeah, yeah, yeah. They could have arguably meant set that up for like, you know, having yeah yeah that's... yeah i mean it was very clunky with like the narrator i thought that was that was very like strange uh which is why i kind of feel like it must be some sort of like late addition in in, in a sense um but uh but yeah i definitely that, think like, that you could four hours you know a lot more and yeah yeah extra okay and have hour second top it up and in a lot of ways, I'm, like, glad that they kept, like, the pieces. Like, there's a lot of little stuff in there that I think is, like, really important, even though it kind of doesn't do very much. Like, so, for instance, when Cliff goes back to his trailer park and, you know, like, feeds his dog and, and everything, like, that, that sets up a couple, that, like, plants a couple of things, right? Like, how well-trained the dog is and everything. Um, but, uh, but I think it also is kind of, like, it, it's, like... I feel so weird that I'm defending this because I typically rag on this in like every fucking movie. Uh, but it's a little bit more of like a mood sort of thing. It's very art house, right? Like this reminds me a lot of like all of the student films I ever watched in fucking college that were like no plot, very aimless. And they were focused, like hyper-focused on kind of like verisimilitudinous truth, right? Like this is the truth of this character's life, right? 
Um, and I think that that's exactly what's kind of happening on screen for Rick and Sharon and Cliff. Um, and normally I get really mad at that stuff because I think it's indulgent and lame and I'm not, I'm just like, am completely uninterested in it. But for some reason it really worked for me in this movie. Uh, maybe just because like Cliff is so cool. I, feel like, like, I also feel like Quentin Tarantino is like, one of his hallmarks is being like self-indulgent, right? Like that's like on display in this movie, right? Like he couldn't be more obvious about the fucking feet thing if he like, you know, literally had him like do a cameo and lick a foot, right? Like, yeah, it was like <laughs> in your face, like on on the like dashboard. On toes. <laughs> yeah, like, you guys are gonna give me shit about feet. Like, look at these fucking feet. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and like, I, yeah, I, I mean, I see, and I definitely agree with that. Uh, be, but the thing that I find that this is a break with is that a lot of the other Tarantino movies are very. I mean, like because everything he does is so pulpy, right? Like, and pulp is driven by uh plot and it's not really about like you know like this is in a way this is like a like a terrence malick movie right about these kind of like ephemeral characters who are thinking about you know like their role in the world they don't really have goals or desires really and they're just kind of like floating from scene to scene but most other quentin tarantino movies are very goal driven right kill hitler get brunhilde back you know um the suitcase like everything in pulp fiction revolves around that fucking suitcase kill bill is named for it's like driving motivator um and so this is a weird uh turn i guess i would say almost like when it's it kind of funny to stage movie all right kill bill um in terms of ending yeah like characters like learn about each other and then like kind of have their emotional bye have this like last bonding moment to fill away with. Yeah. yeah. And there's plenty, and there's like, and there's plenty of Tarantino in kind of, like we talk, uh, you know, this is almost like a game design term, but like, they're like the tactics versus strategy thing, right? Like in the strategic long macro view of the movie, there's not a lot going on, but in the micro kind of tactical scenes there, those are all very Tarantino, right? Like, even though, like even though I was sitting in the theater and I knew that nothing happened to George Spawn, and so I was like, "Where is this kind of going?" Um, the tension that was being built is very similar to you know the Tarantino tension at like the dinner at Candyland or at like you know the bar game uh, in Germany with the SS troopers or right like uh, Hans Landa talking to uh shoshana in the like the parisian cafe where like it is all about like extending the the tense moment and just filling it with suspense for as long as you possibly uh, for as long as you possibly can and there were a couple of moments where like that happened right um so that was very tarantino yeah no i I, i'd agree with that um it's it's funny because like like you, like like you said, this movie is like very Tarantino, but also very different. It's got, it's got all the home like, like like I was talking about, right? Like it, it plays on your expectations there. I think a lot. Um, uh, did did you have something to add, Greg? I was just say like along to your point too about things where those those moments of tension is like that little actress, um, her and like even one of my favorite scenes. It where he um go, um and they drink the mezcal um and it's like it's the dolly shot that goes from one shoulder 
her and he's like, oh, no, take it back, take it back. And, like, the camera, quote, unquote, like, we're watching them film the movie, right? Like, we're living in perspective that, like, mm-hmm. resets and you like, kind of feel, okay, it's like, you know, the elements of, of, like, the, you know, the love letter to Hollywood, like, the nods to the part of it. Like, um, I just looked how that all played out and, like, the scene back to his trailer and he's, like, all upset. Like, those all kind of feel like, up. Yeah, I yeah, love that. Yeah. It's, like, the, those moments of character building. That is where, like, you know, not so much about the plot, and you feel characters and like depth and complexity. So, I'm, but I'm, yeah, I mean, the the moment that like the cinematography where he points to himself in the mirror, but you know that he's not actually pointing to himself yeah. in the mirror, right? Like, if he were to be pointing at himself at that angle, he would not see his own face; he would see like the side of his face or whatever. Um, but like the he when he points into the mirror he is pointing at the camera and he says i will fucking kill you right like because he's gonna commit suicide or whatever if he miss another line like that is the kind of stuff that's just like oh so good right like so greg you talked a little bit about some some of like the uh like the 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 filmmaking stuff and i know that i don't have as good an eye for that um were there any other moments that, that stuck out in particular to you uh, about about uh, some about this. Well, they do the aspect ratio jump, which is always kind of cool, fun when like, like I guess the archival footage, I guess goes goes to to um back to aspect ratio, and even like things like they drive the cars down those big stretches, and just like you guys, oh shit, you guys made like L.A. old school. Yeah, that that yeah. that is not cheap, and like you know, um, I read about this stuff. I saw. And the photos of uh, driving stuff, twelve miles of highway, like fifteen condors, uh, a bunch of, of you know, lights and maxis, and have like like a what twelve second scene, miles of cable and crazy part two is all the cars have to be the scale of this movie, outrageous. I know it's easy to watch a film from the world, but like oh they shot this. Like now, everything fits the part. It's pretty piece. Love that. Yeah, I, I think this is, this is also an interesting conversation. I know part of the talk around this is like you know Tarantino is one of the last true auteurs, right? Um, given that like everything everything's like a sequel or a reboot now, right? Like you get a unique uh, Quentin Tarantino still in the middle of that, and it's still successful. And you're still willing to throw money at him because he's got enough mm-hmm. of his brand there. Uh, just few people I think that could still pull that off, but. Relatively less, it is good to see kind of like you know the the, the masters get their due. I guess is the right way to put it. Um, that's a cut you off here, but that's always a loaded conversation in my mind because it's like you look at this movie objectively, and this is objectively speaking, you look at the Tarantino, like it, it's not a Tarantino film. I think like kind of why I said it was wasn't Tarantino. A lot of people would be like, that was fucking dumb. Right? Like, give it a lot, lend it a lot more credit. Given, like, things will reveal itself, you'll see there's a lot more intelligence to it, the characters are well thought through. I think the reception already gets a lot of hype just Maybe that is exactly what an auteur is, in that case. And there's a whole conversation behind the fact that, like, when these directors get to the point, just, like, let them make the Right? They're not getting back from. Um, studios, they're not having to fight for what they stuff. They don't have any kind of like money people are spending the movie. 
I guess it's mm-hmm. like that make. And I don't think the answer is that make better movies. Does that make worse movies? That like I, that I, I, I mean, the the answer can be either, right? Like you know, um, we, we're Buddy and I are, are fans of the prequels, but like you know, I I at least think that they're of, of lower quality than the, and a lot of people attribute that to the fact that George is kind of unchained. Right, and so you can get off the rails with that, but I do think you've got a point in that. Like a lot of movies that become cult classics are ones that like people explore afterwards and like uh, give them their due diligence, right? Like I guess like the second and third Matrix fall into this category where the people are willing to to give them a little black think about them, and uh, maybe because Tarantino is so popular, like people are willing to pre give them that charity, like be like, well, there must be something here. It's a Tarantino movie, and then they'll do the work to think about it, and that way it's. A success, a success on launch rather than being a cult classic. That makes I also sense. feel like Tarantino is kind of like, it's sort of like Tarantino and Steven Soderbergh, who uh, all, and it was like him, Tarantino, I feel like um, uh, Kevin Smith, right? Like these like indie movie guys that kind of like made it big in the 90s have all sort of like, fallen from grace in a way right like you know like the wachowskis are also this and even if you love right like the the matrix sequels and like speed racer right like jupiter ascending is a it's like trash you know a trash fire or whatever else right like and and in in a certain sense like tarantino is kind of the only person who is the only one of these directors who has kind of like kept his prestige in a way that everybody else sort of like lost it except for probably soderbergh um which I think makes him a little bit like special in a way. Uh, like he's not part of like the new flight of directors. All we, like that we see always end up getting kind of scooped up in into like mainstream stuff, right? Like Taika Waititi will put out what we do in the shadows and hunt for the wilder beasts, and then uh, uh, no, sorry, not wilder beasts, wilder people, wilder people. Um, and then he gets scooped up to do Thor movies, right? Or, like, James Gunn makes it with his horror movie, right? I can't remember what it's called, like, 2006 or whatever. Now he's doing kind of Guardians of the Galaxy. And these people kind of get, like, married, right? Like, it, it is the it is the indie directors that get picked up to do, like, the Marvel movies. And, like, Quentin Tarantino isn't someone who ever went, like, that sort of commercial. He has kind of preserved his own like auteurship even steven soderbergh right like went commercial with like the oceans movies right which became its own sort of like miniature franchise um so i think that like adds a little bit of prestige to him and how he works and where he kind of like falls in the ecosystem Uh, i also think that his not good movies being early in his career gives him a lot of outs like nobody remembers fucking jackie brown or whatever right um um, didn't, like didn't, everybody there, remembers Spike Lee's remake of Old Boy from you know five years ago that was garbage kind of thing. Didn't um didn't Tarantino get tapped to do like a, a Star Trek movie or didn't he want to do a Star Trek movie or something like that? Yeah, I mean it, he he they assembled the writers room for it is the last I heard of anything surrounding the Quentin Tarantino Star Trek movie. Um, you know he says this it, like this has happened three times. He once said it for the Twilight Zone. He said it again for another movie that I don't remember. RoboCop? Predator? Something like that. Um, And then Star Trek is kind of like the third thing. Uh, Maybe that happens, uh, but we'll see. (laughs) Like, I don't don't have a lot of, uh, I don't have a lot of faith, especially just because like Quentin Tarantino, like inside of the industry, you you can see this in like his interviews or whatever, right? 
this is the what this is like the reference that that i was making the other day right like i disagree with your i reject your hypothesis oh, right like yeah. he's belligerent he just fights people all the time and i feel like that's the kind of thing that like yeah you know, it sounds like the kind of thing where like paramount's like oh and you're gonna do the star trek movie like this he's like no fuck you i'm not it's like oh i guess we're yeah. not <laughs> doing this movie yeah, I like the idea that like Kevin Feige like sits down with these the Quentin Tarantino's like oh we're so happy to have you doing like Howard the Duck and then Quentin Tarantino's like okay Howard is a you know is a middle manager at a at a marketing agency and he's really impotent and Kevin Feige's like what he's like you know what I mean like it just keeps going or something super oh, dumb like that fuck Captain uh, Marvel on screen no no yeah no, yeah, no. yeah exactly <laughs> this is gonna like, be the first Marvel like, movie with tits like <laughs> like the the loud the loud cool who's only cool because he's loud, yelling louder than everyone else and you have to listen and like even that's yeah. even the case with um past, like uh robert Rich, like notoriously they call him, call him the white devil a giant asshole who like just rips people apart and like they like you know from the perspective almost like two kind of like we don't give a fuck we're old school hollywood like we're making movies and you know nobody's nobody wants to tell them they're wrong or bad like I, one of my favorite facts in general which is the funniest thing the Django Unchained, with that uh, that Rick Ross song in the middle. The fact that he just likes Rick Ross. They like I, I forget the backstory, but like he met him at a party and they're friends. Like, oh yeah, your music's cool. I'll put it in a movie. Like what? <laughs> what a reason. All to I have know, all I know. I actually did not know the cinematographer of. of I, mean, I feel like I should because you know he does so many. Like he also works with Martin Scorsese a lot. Um, and obviously, like I love I love Scorsese. Um, but, this uh, movie actually was movies that looks still like uh, Robert. Conversation, but known for that, like it's very, very, very present in uh, *Hateful Eight, But that, like, really hot pop light that, like, like yeah. blasts the light right in the middle of the like faces, like super unnatural looking, letting plays. But um, well, so uh, the thing that I think is interesting about Robert Richardson is that he's been announced as the cinematographer for. Wait for it. Venom 2. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Which is completely out of touch with everything else in his, like... I mean, I guess he's the uncredited cinematographer to World War Z, which was also, like, an awful, you know, commercial movie uh, or whatever. But, uh, wow, yeah. All right. All right, Robbie. Get, get it done. Actually, th- there, there's a lot about the cinematography that I liked about this. Um, like, for instance, he... Um, like, Roger Deakins will talk about how he shoots dialogue scenes inside of the conversation rather than over the shoulder, right? Like most like most conversations you go over the shoulder, but Roger Deakins will go inside of the conversation and just flip 180 degrees all the time. Uh, and they did that in this movie for the uh for a lot of the dialogue and uh and like the interview that he did in the beginning of the movie. And I was like, that is never they would never have shot that in that in the 50s, right? Like that is purely a uh that's purely kind of an artifact of our modern kind of like cinematographic tendencies um but uh but i think that that you know like you have to do some of that kind of stuff even if you are sort of doing like historiography and like myth making about the past yeah actually there's a whole uh magazine that about about um and there's a whole article about it this month or last hollywood is uh, Robert talks a lot about how the way they like old Hollywood lights. You can actually see a lot of them in the background with like, big old Richardson lights and like dark lights and the maxi things that um, full spectrum lighting. They're very beautiful and expensive to a lot of power and a lot of crew and a lot of like you know 
bigger support for it. Dying in the belly. That's why, like, and like you know, a joke in the end that everything becomes Candyland. You know, our, everything has color to it. Nothing's just like you know, white and blue. Like you could, uh, like skews slightly off. Um, but you can see it's very naturalistic. Big soft source. Hard light, another. And then he goes mm-hmm. into deep. Match the uh, they kind of switch. I wonder what Warren thinks about that. Friend of the cast, Warren is uh, is a lighted guy in uh, in L.A. Though I don't even think he saw this movie. Um, so you know, <laughs> maybe yeah, I, maybe he I, wouldn't he wouldn't sort of care. I think we need to get you and Warren on the, on on the cast together at some point, Greg. Just because I, I think you guys do very similar things. It comes very up every worlds. time I'm. <laughs> oh, <laughs> does it come up every time yeah. you're on the cast? Good. Guy, he does. Um, he works with the animation studio for the stop motion thing. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like okay. he just finished up, I think, Robot Chicken, and it's like final season or whatever. Um and uh but yeah he's he's done he's done like a bunch of uh he's done like a bunch of stuff but he has some very specific thoughts I don't really know like I I can see cinematography and I can see editing very well but lighting isn't something I have much of an eye for um so I I definitely rely on Warren to like catch catch things right um except for like color and uh I guess that that's like its own sort of like beast or whatever uh. Back to the to the movie itself. Yeah, back to the movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's part of the movie. It's no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, this, I think this it's is part of why you're here, right? Well, you talk I think about it's normally like you know, I can sit here and talk to the Suncus about how movies make Andy Ogle days, but that's a whole other stuff. But um, like this, I think is because the movie is so much about making Hollywood part of the country. Yeah, no. Generally speaking, it's just kind of like you know, tech nerd talk that most people don't care about. But like, it is a love letter to the process of relevant and probably this podcast so so buddy I, I got a question for you you at one point okay. kind of said that like you could you discovered what the movie was about like you kind of like reasoned yeah. it out what 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 do you what, what is your what is your thesis there, okay so here's here's my thing here's my like here's my confusion right we got to the very end of the movie text for the first thing that was crazy is the one girl leaves right um so it's it's the you know it's the night of the Sharon Tate murder. You know that the Manson family is like coming up the street or whatever, and you're like, okay, Sharon Tate's gonna die, right? Like that's the that's like the first thought. But then the one girl gets cold feet, gets in the car, and drives away. And I was like, okay, that didn't happen, right? Four of them were there and committed this crime. And are, and went to prison for it. So obviously we're kind of like getting off the like getting off the rails. And I also didn't quite pick up like that they had changed their focus from Sharon Tate to uh, Rick Dalton. Um, even though they had kind of like talked about it, I was I was a little confused about like where their target was. But then they were just like, no, we're going to fucking kill Rick Dalton. I was like, okay, well now we're going completely sort of like off the rails. And then we just get into the you know like the violence and the dog um and you know brutally murdering tex watson and the the like the women and the flamethrower in the fucking pool at like the very end or whatever and then uh and then there's that like really brief denouement where you know sharon tate comes out and she's like oh my god i can't believe this this happened do you want to like come up to you know roman polanski's house or whatever and uh and i was like 
what the fuck is the point of this movie, right? Like, what is it saying thematically? Because, like, even, you know, like, I like The Hateful Eight, uh, and I think it's, I, f- I feel like people don't like that movie as much as the other ones. Um, but, like, even in the movies that don't connect with people, I can still identify, right, like, the themes at play, right? And I'm like, okay, what is the point of this movie? The point of this movie is X, Y, or Z sort of thing, right? Um, but I had a hard time for maybe the first 30 minutes, less than that, like 15 minutes, because I was driving home with a uh, friend of the cast, Charles Powell, at the time when I, like, figured it out. But the thing that the thing that I kind of realized is that, like, in the context of filmmaking history, the Charles Manson murders are kind of like the end of old Hollywood and the beginning of new Hollywood, um, which isn't quite like, it's not to say that that's a causal thing. It's not like the Manson murders caused that to happen, but like the, the new movie making style that came about in the 1970s and was kind of killed off in the 1960s can be kind of like those murders are a, are right on that turning point if that makes sense right and so the once upon a time nature of the title is that this is a fairy tale that essentially quentin tarantino is i guess telling to himself which is this idea that rick dalton who is kind of the avatar of old hollywood and sharon tate who is kind of the avatar of new hollywood the prevention of the charles manson murders marries those two things together right like early in the movie rick dalton talks about like how he would love to get into a roman polanski movie and like revitalize his own career which is something by the way that quentin tarantino does does for old actors all the time um and he talks about how he loves like john travolta was nobody in pulp fiction he had completely kind of fallen off everyone's radar and then he got put in pulp fiction and all of a sudden became a big movie star again like that kind of a thing um and so that that's the that's the core idea of the movie, right? Like it is this idea that like, oh man, I love old Hollywood. I love new Hollywood. I wish one didn't have to kind of supplant the other. I wish they could have sort of like bound together. And this is my own sort of like fan fiction on that kind of happening, which I find, you know, it's not it's not or too super complex and it doesn't even really like make sense on a like historical level or really like logical level, but on an emotional level, I get that. Right. Do you know what I mean? I, I think I, I think I can buy some version of that. Right. Like I could also like pull it out one level and be meta and be like, this movie is that right. Like Quentin Tarantino kind of is that guy, right. The guy that's willing to like marry those two types of things together. Like that's part of why he has such a style. Mm-hmm. Um, so like in some ways I could see this as, fan fiction about himself i think also kind of in rick's character arc right like if i think there's a reading of this where like you know tarantino is seeing himself as kind of being over the hill um and then like telling himself that he doesn't have to be right like he can do whatever he wants to do um how, how old is quentin tarantino do you do but uh, boy you... that's a good question i mean he made his first movie in 1991 so he must be uh Let's take a look. He was born in 1963, which would actually make him 50 older. Five? Yeah, 50s. He's, yeah, he's pushing. He's pushing 60. He's getting up there. Yeah. Wait, he's, still, he's still not like old, old though, right? Like, he's yeah, still, he's still, yeah, he's still not old, old. Yeah, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, but yeah, no. So like, I, I definitely think there's a reading that's like, you know, 
this is his letter to himself um uh with with Rick Dalton um or to you know kind of a variety of ways um i also like so the the thing that you pointed out about the um about them targeting uh about them targeting uh Rick Dalton was right like i don't know if you remember the conversation in the car but it's like you know Oh, these these guys that showed us murder on TV taught us to murder, right? They're they're the, mm-hmm. the reason that there's violence in society, which is like weirdly a topic right now in like kind of the real world. And they immediately get like fucking crushed by like uh, egregious violence, right? Like mm-hmm. I feel I feel like that's kind of like a haha fuck you to that kind of like thought process, right? like the that that kind of seriousness. Because like that was was that like a, a topic at the time? I think that's like the around the first era of, of that kind of like concern about like the children type of deal or, or am I off? Yeah. 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 I, I definitely think that there is a big piece of that in, uh, in there, right? Like in a certain sense, it's almost kind of like satirically making fun of it. Right. Like yeah. that the truly loathsome, horrible people are making the argument that like violent media taught them to be violent and then, get killed for it so like haha how stupid sort of thing like i i don't think it's a very complex argument but you know quentin tarantino has been flagged a ton of times um for kind of like going over the top and being too violent or whatever he has like he's like one famous interview from i think like 1996 or like 1997 with like a concerned mom it's like he's it's like him versus a concerned mom on like you know denver like fox denver or something like that or whatever and she's like how can you make this like so bloody and he's like because i like it janice (laughs) it's really funny honestly like it 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 was like it was kind of like memed before memes even really like existed in a way um and so i do think that there's a certain amount of him uh responding to that you know like that criticism by thumbing his nose at it right yeah no like and that, that final scene was, I felt like he was, like, built, like, he was, like, you know, we're saving all of our violence in this film for this, like, last two-minute chunk, right? Because, like, like, particularly, um, Cliff, like, slamming the one girl's head into the beam, like, it was too many times, to- like, nothing, you know, I think it served its purpose, like, for that purpose, but, like, it felt like it was too many times, right? Like, you could have done it, like, once or twice, but you did it, like, you did, like, six or seven times, right? Just, like, bang, bang, bang. Bang! The right. part, the part where he lifts her head up to see if she's still breathing, and then slams her down again. I was just like, "Wow!" Yeah, uh, no, it, it was, it was, whoa. it was intense. It was, yeah. Like it takes a lot for me, but like at some point, I was like, "Huh, this, this, this is over yet?" <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> I was um, when I was reading about the whole uh, Bruce, there was all this back and forth about like, could Cliff actually be quite like fuck? And there was an interview with Terrence about it and the article was painting like, oh like this is how you do and it wouldn't say how had this whole backstory of how he was like like and how he killed hand to hand combat and like this whole rant about how like how many times murdered somebody with a knife like which then led to question spin off. But um you know everybody But um I think the part of that is the influence of the fact that like this is is this ultraviolet guy that like is capable of stuff? I think that's always was kind of the plan. Yeah, I feel yeah. I feel like a Cliff spinoff would be a mistake in the same kind of way that like we t- we've talked about this with Deadpool, right? Like 
Deadpool yeah. when he's like the background character is better. I think this also like happened with um Han the, Solo. Uh, oh yeah, Han I Solo. Mean, you you like I don't like Han or I don't like Solo, but um, no, but I, I, or Pirates of the Caribbean is the better example where when it became focused on yeah. Jack Sparrow. Um, I was thinking of Perfect Dark. Um, oh oh, the Vin Diesel. Uh, yeah, the Vin Riddick. Yeah, Riddick. Yeah, uh, it's supposed to have this kind of thing too, where like they're cool as kind of like background characters because they don't have to be. I feel like you get the same thing with like if you. No, that's. I think that is one hundred percent correct. Like, I, I. So Cliff is my favorite character in the movie, and I think it's entirely because I think he is the best acted. Like, I think Brad Pitt. I mean, it's funny because I couldn't remember his name, but uh, but I think Brad Pitt disappeared into that character the most effectively. Um, in a way, I almost think that Leo kind of was the bottom of the three main characters because I also think that Margot Robbie did a really good job uh as sharon tate but um <clears throat> i mean I, I could also buy a version of this for like leo is being himself in some regards right like he's like kind of towards that end of things right where he's like kind of yeah, getting yeah. Over the himself like he is he is Dalton in some ways mm-hmm. i don't know i i really like the performance like th- that that scene in the uh in the trailer is like i think my favorite in the yeah and so and the thing that this sort of uh situation makes easy for you is the ability to um offload your kind of like character arc and goals and motivation onto a different uh onto a different character than like the cool guy character right like when han solo has like you know when han solo is doing the things that like you know protagonists do it makes him a little bit less interesting. So if you have Luke Skywalker who is going through the protagonist stuff and then Han Solo gets to be just like the cool buddy on the side, it's that makes for like a better dynamic. Yeah. And that's the same kind of dynamic that uh, that they have in um, Cliff yeah. and Cliff and Rick. Yeah. yeah. No, I absolutely, I absolutely. Do you think, do you think Cliff killed his wife? Uh, i feel like i I, my answer is going to be a combo but i feel like it wants to be like the same answer as like what's in this case right okay fair enough yeah um it's kind of like it's intentionally ambiguous like i mean obviously it's intentionally but like it's like i don't think the there's there's an answer there i mean there's never supposed yeah i think that's actually a like i think it's a deep cut reference i can't remember i think his name is robert wagner um Robert Wagner. Oh, this is absolutely him. Yeah, so uh, in 1980-something, this one actor killed his wife. We Everybody thinks, right? Like, officially, she drowned. Oh, I'm sorry. No, uh, in 2008, Robert Wagner was named as a person of interest in an ongoing investigation into the mysterious drowning death of his wife, Natalie Wood in 1981 and i think it's i think this is a deep cut reference to that because it's so specific like to the same kind of um to the same kind of thing most of you guys will uh will know robert wagner as number two in the austin power trilogy of films um (laughs) uh, and i also think christopher walken was on the boat when she died but yeah uh so i felt like that was i felt like that was kind of the (laughs) reference that they were making um, which is just like I don't even know why I know this. Like, I, when movie? did I learn I this that movie? movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Christopher Walken, like giving conflicting. The the whole thing with her death is really weird because like 
all of the witnesses did that thing where they were just like, oh, he was like in the library. Uh, I was, we were shooting pool in the bar, right? Like, or whatever else. And the cops were like, this is so fucking suspicious, you guys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's what I thought that, that like, I, that's what I thought the reference was to, um, to fucking uh, Cliff killing his wife on the boat or whatever, even though it happened, you know, 10 years earlier, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, I think I think that anachronism is fine, but like, yeah, no, I, I, uh, it's it's weird too because like I feel like you didn't need that subplot, right? Like, maybe I don't know. I, I feel like you could have you could have done like you like not that I didn't think it was good movie watching, but I, I feel like you could have cut that whole subplot and had it been had the movie like ninety five percent intact. I don't know. I think that maybe informs like. Been my point for like why I'm part of this definitely is you know, like okay, like that moment's like guys can't believe. Okay, like, that's fair. Know, like, that's fair. It's the the one time they kinda hit on the nose and that's maybe why he slams that girl's head like five more times. Yeah. Into like mm-hmm. a post. Okay. You know? How about that? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Then like it at least grounds that ending a little bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying like it's really motivated, but like a little bit. Yeah, no I, like I, I feel like such, like, a, a fucking, like, nerd, but, like, the moment he, like, pulled the, like, uh, when Rick pulls the uh, the flamethrower out of the shit, I'm like, why would they let him keep the flamethrower, right? <laughs> like, oh, no, dude, so there's a shot when when, um, when Cliff goes into the bed to get the, go put the antenna on the roof, the flamethrower's in that shot. I literally, did you, did you see it? 100% saw that coming. I was like, they're gonna burn him. Like, they're gonna burn oh. him with that flamethrower and saw that a mile <laughs> away. So I was at all surprised, like, there it is. <laughs> no, so, like... I, uh, yeah, I did not catch the flamethrower no. there, though. I wish I had. Yeah, no, and if I had caught it, but I would have had the same kind of, like, gut reactions, like, hey, what the fuck? This is so inaccurate, right? You know, I just kind of, like, yeah. my, 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 uh, what's the word you use for this, uh, buddy? The, uh, like... Fridge logic, or... No, no, the, uh, the... Oh, nitpicky bullshit. Yeah, nitpicky yeah. bullshit, yeah. No, to be fair, yeah. that's kind of, like, a thing that does happen in movies. Give it a flamethrower is a little bit different because like, yeah, yeah. dangerous element, but, like, mm-hmm. like, a lot of actors get to, keep, like, heat props. Like they get okay. to like keep like I don't know like yeah Batman the uh, the, I'm yeah. sorry Batman Ben Affleck kept the uh, the the bat suit from <laughs> Batman. I think he paid he I think he paid half a million dollars to keep it or something like that. Um, yeah. so, sometimes they just get stuff like that's like they steal it. That's what I think happens a lot too. I'm just I'm just imagining Ben Affleck like sitting in his house being a Batman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He gets the mirror. He, 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 he like squeezes into it. He has to kind of like tuck in his guy, like you know, like, and then he sits in front of a mirror and he's just like a Batman, like <laughs> <laughs> before he goes on a date or something like that. Wow, that's funny. <laughs> Sitting alone at his kitchen table, like with a drink, like I'm fucking Batman. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, yeah. I feel bad that we haven't talked about Margot Robbie and Sharon Tate. Oh but, yeah. Uh, uh you know like there's not like i i liked everything about her but um but like she's a little bit of a minor presence in the movie to her, be her, her plot line like, is completely divorced from like the 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 Rick cliff plot line for the yeah so the thing that i think that she's in there to do in a way is to kind of like re-mythologize her or like yeah. take her so like in a certain sense, her, the value of Sharon Tate has become 
she is Roman Polanski's eight and a half month pregnant wife who was butchered by the Manson family. And like, that was kind of tragic. And in a way that like, you know, God, wow. Uh, I'm about to do. Okay. In, in the same way that like Gwen Stacy is not an interesting character until she dies in the Spider-Man comics, like Sharon Tate has kind of been mythologized in that same sort of way, right? Like she's not an interesting actress or an interesting person or somebody to have like empathy for, right? She's like an object for kind of pity and, um, misery in a way because she was like the victim of this murder and so i get the feeling that like tarantino's whole idea is like no like she was a person and she had hopes and dreams and, and feet that she put up on the seat feet <laughs> that she put up on the seat <laughs> i'm sorry and she goes you're right like and but she you know she goes and watches herself in a movie and smiles when like the audience is laughing at her jokes or whatever right like that she is like a thinking breathing person worthy like of more than just like oh it's so tragic what happened to her kind of thing which is like on one hand i think very like nice right you right. know i'm sure if i was you know sharon tate's sister who was like consulted with on the movie and it said very like positive things um she actually got on this is part of what made that whole thing with bruce lee really funny is that she kind of got on the daughter of bruce lee's case for like rep for like inaccurate representation or whatever when it's like well aren't you just like this is our what, what what's going on between your representative aspect or whatever anyway um but like also from a movie making perspective i'm a little bit like this is kind of superfluous and we could pull it out you know um yeah but i don't know like part of me thinks that maybe maybe the movie deserves to suffer so that we can think about sharon tate as a more complex individual yeah, no, and, and I don't think it's bad. It's just, like, separate, right? Like, it, it's almost like two separate movies interweaved in one, right? Like, there's the Sharon Tate movie. Mm. Like, I think there's a different universe where, like, you could make this into the Sharon Tate movie, and there's the Rick movie. And then, like, there's, like, the final movie kind of, like, is about them tying together, right? Kind of adventure style, right? Yeah. Um, uh, not that that would, like, work in the same way, but just, you know, like, you could you could do it that way um and i think that would be uh and like i said i don't think it's bad it's just different like it's separate right like the guaranteed stuff could really separate yeah yeah <laughs> i don't know all right is there anything else you guys had to say about uh about this here movie ruski um, last thought here, generally speaking, like, I think there's a, something I've touch so, um, like, oh, I could end up in, like, I, I live next to him. At the end, after all that, I met him up, and I think it's kind of a nod to the whole hell, and it's like, oh, it was this tragic thing, but I could still be like, like, you know, I think there's, yeah. there's some kind of, like, cheeky, sort of, like, kind of, like, Point at that with the ending. Yeah, and uh, like I think this ties into something that I, I forgot about. You brought it up, but like, how like how weird is the Roman Polanski thing supposed to be? Like specifically Roman Polanski, right? Like, like Quentin Tarantino's got himself in some trouble about like the you know Roman Polanski's been um, accused. I don't know if he's been convicted of. He, he was things. convicted of uh, rape. Right, like he's he's a rapist. terrible things, and yeah, 
you know, Hollywood has been in some ways apologetic for him. Quentin Tarantino in particular, I think, had like said something a while ago that maybe he walked back. In Uh-oh. 2003, I think in a Howard's... I actually, I give him a lot of credit for, for this sort of thing. People will drag on him for this, but I think that this is inaccurate. In 2003, in an interview with um, Howard Stern, he talked about like, oh, you know, she consented. It's rape, but it's not that bad sort of thing, which is really like awful. But he later kind of like, he like, he he later kind of was like no i was completely wrong about all of this and it was a really awful thing for me to say or whatever um but i think people don't quite realize that in 2003 that was the sentiment of a lot of folks it's just that like quentin tarantino was on tape about it right like having better and more like we have a much better and more complex uh sort of conversation around consent and rape in general in you know 2019 than we did in 2003 um which is part of why this this kind of has happened yeah i think people drag him but he does not deserve it Uh, sure but like the the fact remains that like roman polanski is in this film which you know like it's it's true to real events so I, i can't like i feel like there's a version of this movie where roman polanski is like alluded to off camera is never on camera right like Mm-hmm. They'll kind of avoid that. And if it, it, it feels like it feels like there, there's got to be some intentionality there. Does that make sense, or, or am I reaching too? No, I, I I get that. I get that. I mean, you know, it's tough. Um, I it, it's funny to me that I actually haven't seen anything along those lines. I feel like I would have like read that take by now. That like oh yeah. like roman polanski in this movie is like just i mean maybe it's out there now that i say it out loud it's it's got to be out yeah, there somebody, somebody's gonna have said something right? yeah, yeah yeah but um uh you know what are you gonna do kind of thing it, it, uh, it is not a a take that is like ascending right, right, right. um which this film has been one of the most mild of the Tarantino movies that have kind of, I mean, I guess the last two ones were about like, kind of like racism and like, you know, the, the prodigious use of racial slurs or whatever. Who Somebody gets mad at Quentin Tarantino for that. Oh, Spike Lee does. Spike Lee thinks that it's wrong for Quentin Tarantino to use, um, to like write racial epithets into, into his scripts or whatever. And so like, typically after, uh, I think after Hateful Eight and Django both came out, there was like this whole discord where it's like, oh, is it is this okay or whatever? And like, just nobody nobody fucking cares, you guys. Like, <laughs> <laughs> He's like, Rick Ross, the songs in my movie, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would be like, you I know. mean, it, it's it's kind of amazing though, because like Quentin Tarantino as him, like you know himself on film in Pulp Fiction, like saying saying the end with a hard R, right? Like, and it, yeah. I'm surprised that hasn't been like retroactively canceled just because like that's like it's so egregious, right? Like You know, funnily enough, I almost want to retroactively cancel Pulp Fiction. I think Pulp Fiction is not very great. Hot take, you guys. I think the <laughs> best Quentin Tarantino movie is Inglorious Bastards. Everything after has been downhill. Everything before was just a warm up. Uh no, I, I I would I would agree to the, the overall arc of that. That was the most fun. Some of the, like, the, I, I want to say, like, least a lot of ways, too. Hmm. Uh, just, like, there's, there's like, so a little bit of something for everybody in there, and it has that violence. Uh, I, I yeah, and I think it, I think it executes, it executes on that Tarantino tension the best, right? Like, I don't think any scenes are 
<coughs> more suspenseful in Tarantino movies than, right, you know, Hans Landa talking to Shoshana, right? Like the, all those scenes that I quoted earlier. Like there's just so much because you are just like, oh my God, this could just erupt into just like, this could go so wrong at any moment. And that's so palpable um, compared to kind of stuff, you know, later in, later in his sort of, in sort of his filmography. I also think Pulp Fiction gets a little bit, it's like, it's a little bit like, um, uh, Fu Panda and Empire. That's what I was thinking, right? Like your, your comparison there. He's, it's like Seinfeld effect type stuff. Yeah. You know, like it was, I think at the time it was really revolutionary, but like we have gotten much more used to sort of like non-linear ensemble based movie making. Um, and so in, in a certain sense, it is really huge for the time, but like now it's a little bit more mundane. Right. Cause like we've seen movies like this a hundred times. Yeah, and, I, and people have improved upon that formula, right? Like, Bad Times at the El Royale is Pulp Fiction done better, right? It is. I don't know if I agree with that. Uh, yeah. Really? I see. I think, yeah, I like El Royale, I, but like, I I think like I think there's still some things about Pulp Fiction that are like like the it's like the character moments. I think in Pulp Fiction are still really fucking great, right? Like, jewels being jewels throughout most of that movie. I think is. And maybe that's more on Sam Jackson than on Quentin Tarantino. But, like, I think that's, mm. like, a, a thing that, like, is, like, that really That's, like, transcendent. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I could buy that. Maybe I could get on board for that. It is, like, the define. I mean, like, it's really tough to argue that that is not, like, a next-level performance, right? Like, it defined this entire man's career and persona from then on, you know? Yeah. So, that's fair. Okay. I, I'll maybe, I'll maybe, like, buy into that. Um but yeah, I, I I think that that's about it. You, you uh, I, that that's what we got to say about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, I guess that's yeah, that's what I have to say. Um, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, time for a week's, and you know, Greg is the guest. You've got you can reach into your back history of what you've been doing this and amount of time since you were last on the show. How what, what have you been doing? What do you do? You have anything you want to talk about? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> Tell us all about your year in gaming, Greg. Gaming, okay. I replayed Castle Crashers. Um, um, what else did I do? I had I breezed over The Witcher Three. I started to play because I was trying to find like a vice to scratch that Skyrim itch, and I started like Witcher. 3. Like this isn't Skyrim, so I stopped playing it, and I tapped into that a little bit recently. Um, everyone probably actually games is laughing at me. Uh, these are all games. From, like, so, so Witcher, yeah, I know. The Witcher is from like 2015. Yeah. I, the, you, but, but it's, it's fault this arc from being like, you know, like, oh, it's good. Oh, it's like the best game ever. Oh, like it's the best game ever. But ironically, and like fucking like, does anybody else think The Witcher Three is a great game? Yeah. Right? Like, so, um, you know, you're, you're on the enough of the other side of the curve. Yeah, like, that's I mean, not Castle Crashers like 2008 or whatever. Right, right, like, right. The, and the, uh, if they come out with Castle Crashers, I have to buy that so I can actually buy Skyrim again. Mm. Castle Crashers. Um. I also just started, I was telling uh, Mike about this the other day, I started playing a game called Vigor, uh, which is like a play game. Um, it's like a, I believe it's Norway, it's like a post-apocalyptic kind of thing. Up like a, a, a safe zone with like stuff, and then you can uh, areas to scavenge stuff, but there's other players there, and if they keep that's been kind of fun. Um, and I did another throwback, I, I picked up a copy of Skate 3, because I wanted to scratch that itch. Okay, 
See, this is neat because, like, you know, people our age, right? Like, a lot of the people go back to, like, the N60. Oh, the game stopped being good past. And I don't I'm saying you're saying that, but, like, seem to be caught, like, a generation ahead of that. With like, ah, I'm not interested in newer stuff so much, but I'm more interested in going back to kind of, like, the classics. Yeah, I mean, part of it's, like, not a lot of my friends still play video games. And I, and I, you know, I dive in and out, so I don't have, like, the social aspect of gaming, which, like, is, like, a lot of it, which makes it a lot better. Like, I did, mm-hmm. I did play a lot of, I guess since I last played, I played a lot of PUBG um, as well. But a lot of PUBG, when I started playing PUBG with friends to play it, so then I got into that a little bit. For the most part, it's, like, I play here and there, like, between work or, like, what I need to break. So, maybe investing in a game that's more involved or needs more time or needs um, I kind of lean back on like I know. So I guess since the last time I was on the cast too, I dove pretty heavily into Destiny. I played Destiny a lot. Um, and I I played Destiny first one a lot, and then I kind of fell off of it. Like coming in uh, October. Yeah. Actually, that's an interesting point because um, this this is like I'm gonna watch off this. Um, uh, kind of disclaimer: I am investing in Activision Blizzard. Um, and so you should take that into account when evaluating my statements about it. This is interesting because, like, I find this kind of, like, intersection of, like, law and disclosure and FTC stuff interesting. And uh, I want to plug uh, – Richard Hope does a series called Virtual Legality on YouTube and on podcast form. Um, and I actually I, – I tweeted at him, and he got back to me. He pointed me to a section that says, you know, anybody who's invested in any stuff should probably disclose it. I'd like to stress that's not legal advice. Um, but, like, I thought it was – I thought it was super interesting because, like, you know – We've been talking about MTG Arena for like, like weeks, months at this point, right? I'm invested in Hasbro, right? Like technically, that's like a, a conflict of interest. Not that the FTC is going to come after me. Not that enough mm-hmm. people listen to the podcast for it to really matter. But I think it's like it's all like really interesting stuff, right? So, uh, that like you know, there's like all these kind of like twists and turns where like you know, there's I like you know, if you're like, I'm invested in video game companies on the stock market. Because I know video game stuff and I feel like I can like make judgments there. That also means that like I should probably be telling everybody on this cast like what I'm invested in, which feels like a thing to need. So are we are we now turning the finance podcast? Best follow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, some, like, some what's the talk standard about, there? Some, Do you know what I mean? Talk about a uh, uh, stock market. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, because like, because like, when I you know like when I go out to dinner with my friends and I like talk about right like movies and I'm like, oh man, Batman vs Superman. I fucking like love that movie, right? Like. I don't tell them, oh, by the way, you guys, you should know that I'm invested in Warner Brothers and AT&T or whatever, right? Like, Right. Well, I mean, so, so your friends are, are different, right? But, like, the, the FTC guidelines are anything that could, that would reasonably, like, please, like, reasonably color, um, like, somebody's judgment, right? Like, where there, there could be a conceivable conflict of interest you can close, so people can take it into it, right? Like, my freaking five shares of Hasbro probably aren't going to affect me too much. I'm talking about MTG Arena, but you know, that shouldn't be my decision to make. That should probably be the person at home mm-hmm. listening. And you know, I mean, this only actually really became a problem once Monic and uh and uh and Paul decided to start donating to it, right? Like if we weren't making money off of it, then it That's probably fair. wouldn't be a problem. But people are are ostensibly giving us money because they they value our insight, right? And so um not that it's an ad but not that, not that we're like specifically compensated, just not like you know, Stocks go up because if stock goes up in some small way because I'm like, and Destiny 2 is the greatest game ever, then you know, that's theoretically a conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. Again, there is very little chance that the FTC will go after you for that because they mostly care about like things like, you know, 
medical devices and things that will like cause real harm to people other than like you know, buying a bad video but uh i don't know i just like like i said like like greg you know this is going to turn into like investment podcast or anything but um but just that like if you're if you are interested in that kind of stuff you should definitely follow uh richard hoag's uh uh virtual legality on youtube he's a he's a business lawyer that operates out of he's not directly involved with, with any of these companies um but he offers kind of like you know legal advice free analysis type stuff so... i find super no i'm not <laughs> Uh, he is, he is, he is a private, I don't know. I don't know, I don't know the legalities behind it. I can't invest in publicly. I thought he Fair was enough. <laughs> uh, I've been playing WoW Classic. It's, it's, it's a thing. Uh, so here is an interesting take on WoW Classic that I have started to see kind of crop up, which is the, like, we said we wanted it. But we didn't take, which is kind of circling all the way around. You know, like, so for instance. This is what we said, buddy. We said this for like a year. No, I know, I know, I know. Uh, So uh, the original thing that happened in 2013 was one of the, the, somebody asked a question. It's like, hey, would you guys ever consider releasing a legacy server so that we can play vanilla again or whatever? And then the answer that the dev gave on the fly was, you think you want that, but you don't kind of thing nowadays that is bandied about in the greater wow universe as ha 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 hilarious how did somebody say something so stupid of course we wanted wow classic and to be fair there is very clearly a subset of players who really does like absolutely kind of like want and believe in this thing um but the enormous success of wow classic and i do truly mean enormous right like 1.1 million people tuned in to the launch of wow classic on twitch setting a single day concurrent viewer uh like milestone right like fortnite didn't even get those numbers or whatever um and you know there the servers have been filling up and wait times and queue times are huge blizzard is adding like new servers they're all at very high population etc etc so like there is a there is a certain narrative right like the you know activision blizzard stock jumped a couple of points because like nobody really expected it to be this successful a video game launch right like this is this is always kind of seen as like a, oh like here's a small thing that we're going to do to kind of like ameliorate the fans and it turned into like its own kind of de facto giant video game release even though it is a release for a video game 15 years old um but uh but i definitely think that that kind of hype has roped in more people than uh like it necessarily intends like i think that there are millions of people playing wow classic right now probably only like maybe half of them are going to be sticking around in in the next kind of month and maybe that's just like the story of an mmo kind of in general um but some of the other things that have kind of come out of this is like how sort of broken in the modern era wow classic kind of like really is um so for instance molten core got cleared uh two days ago on saturday six days after the release of wow classic um, and the only thing that really happened was a, a European guild power leveled to 60, and most of their guild was about level 60. Some of them were between levels 55 and uh, 60, and the main tank had farmed up a lot of fire resist gear, and they one-shot the entire raid 
front to back in a single in a single night. It took 154 days after the release of Molten Core for a full clear of Molten Core in 2006 or whatever it was. It took six days in 2015 to get to that same sort of milestone. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about this um, specifically in like the WoW Classic, or I'm sorry, like vanilla WoW content is not actually hard or difficult. It, the difficulty is in assembling 40 people to do a thing. Um, and so when you can, you know, kind of coordinate in that sort of like world's first race, it's actually not that, it's actually like not that hard. Um, but but you, I you, find you all of this play, tremendously interesting. Play vanilla initially, or did you start Me? with? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I got. I had a level sixty shaman in vanilla. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Greg, Greg and I both played vanilla, um, and I think we both hit like sixty right before burning Day came. Yeah, out. I was like, a... yeah. <laughs> um, but like no, I, we played a lot. We played for way before. Like yeah, we know. didn't play as as much, right? Yeah. yeah um, and I think I think it's interesting because like. I can definitely speak to some of that like difficulty stuff. Like I don't know about you, Greg, but I, I played I played a priest. Um, we were we were alliance side. I'm like I'm like thirty forties. Um, but uh, because you know shaman were support at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, I played a priest and like I was getting pulled like out of like you know general chat at level fifty eight to heal for raids, right? Like right um, because they just need, were that hard up for healers. But I was able to do it successfully, even at like you know, non-max level with like no real gear. Like I could, I could yeah. off heal with it without a problem. Which I think, which I think is uh, uh, just in, in, interesting, kind of like evidence, like, like we should have kind of seen this coming, right? That like mm -hmm. that, that it was never actually going to be that hard. Whereas like now it's like now I like I tried healing once in like modern WoW, and I just like I, I didn't know it well enough. Like oh, that is absolutely. Yeah. I mean, funnily enough, I actually think tanking in in WoW Classic is more difficult, probably. Uh, but that's just because, like, so so one of the interesting things is that over the years in World of Warcraft, they have moved tanking away from kind of threat-focused to mitigation-focused, right? Essentially, the enemies in, in retail hit much, much harder, and you are investing your time and resources into decreasing those hits from hurting right whereas in vanilla the goal like the the hard part about being a tank and where you're investing your resources is in keeping aggro of all of the mobs because the amount of threat you generate compared to the amount of threat generated by your team members right is like that's like the kind of dynamic point right so like i tanked the dead mines and i just couldn't hold aggro for my fucking life right i was constantly trying to like taunt things off of the mages who were just like aoeing everything and pulling all of the mobs and then the heals generate a tremendous amount of aggro so things got, got on our healer or whatever so it was much 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 more chaotic than like a current day wow dungeon run but like the the kind of inflection point of the mastery is the is like the interesting part yeah, that, was also, that also used to be part of like the dps and healer like responsibility too is like not not fucking your aggro up like, not yeah going yeah like the 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 meme is you wait for five sunders right sunder armor generates a ton of aggro so you the tank goes in he starts stacking Sunder Armor. When he gets to five, he has generated enough aggro on the mob that everybody else can kind of, like, join in okay. um, at that point. It's also why other classes have a very hard time tanking, because uh, Warrior is the only t class that has a true taunt that can, like, force something to attack you. Um, so, but yeah, like, the, it's, I'm, I'm just noticing a lot of this stuff. But I will say, like, you know, I, I do think, and Blizzard, you know, 
the blizzard very quickly walked back the you think you want it but you don't sort of thing and uh uh and so I'm not trying to like hold that kind of against them. They are very different games and I am enjoying my time in WoW Classic a lot, specifically because WoW Classic has this uh has that Skyrim effect, right? Where like your bag space is small and you're running around all over the place and that creates it just like creates this weird interaction where like you are going and you're questing and your bags fill up and you go back to town and you dump stuff and then you go back to questing and then you go back to town and like there's this kind of like back and forth to it that is in the modern like retail era where you have huge 30 slot bags and hundreds of bag slots or whatever right um and you have three different hearthstones that can get you back to right like using a 60 minute hearthstone and it's the only thing you have is such a huge cooldown that you have to like be smart about it in a way and like money matters right like there are times this list literally happened to me where i'm just like look that's a two silver flight point i do not i need that two silver i'm gonna run it and i run from whatever like red ridge to Stormwind instead of taking the flight path or whatever and so like all of that low level stuff in like the kind of like leveling and like moving through the world i do think like is is very successful um and is presenting a different experience that you couldn't get in retail. Um, but uh, yeah, there are de- like for for everyone that is like saying like, oh man, like I wish they made retail more like classic. Like, please God, do not make retail more like classic. I remember like- the moment playing WoW and I got my mouth. For the- oh shit! Now I don't have to run everywhere. Like this thing's gonna faster. Like specifically remember that gaming. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah I-, I mean, and it's a big moment, right? Like. Um, and it's not even a hundred, it's like going 60% faster, right? Like now all of my mounts are three, three, ten percent flying speed, right? So, you know. Yeah, um, no, I, I definitely remember that as well. Like, uh, the, 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 the mount stuff being like, like, I remember not being able to afford my mount for a while, partially because I, I was like, I did like engineering as a profession, right? Which is like the one profession that didn't make you any fucking money at all. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, you know. Like, it, like, gold was real... I remember trying to, like, fish up, like... Like, what, like the, the rum from, like, the, the pools in, in eBay and trying to sell that to make some cash. Because uh, there, was, there was just so little of it to be had. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I am... Uh, that, is my, that is my WoW Classic goal. What I want to do is I want to get my blacksmithing to 300 and I want to make myself an Arcanite champion. And that will be success in my head for, for like, WoW Classic, right? Um, and, uh, and it's fun, but it is also like, it is a brutal grind. And this is where, this is where, you know, the, the people who are saying like, did, did we, did we want it? Maybe we didn't want it after all. have kind of like come in, like the grind is so nuts, um, these days. And so it's just like, we're bad back then too, right? Like, oh yeah. Oh my God. And just like the the way the, the, the small things that you forget that they changed over the years. Like, so for instance, tagging mobs like if somebody damages a mob before you get to it 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 is their mob you don't get it right and if there's a bunch of people all farming the same mod for like a 20 percent drop chance of whatever and you need boar intestines and like you're just going to be sitting there for like 45 minutes trying to get boar intestines for like a fucking quest or whatever right um that's actually been like extremely brutal in groups too right like in retail in a in a retail group if I tag a mob and it has a quest drop for all of us, we will all get one of that quest drop, right? In retail, or I'm sorry, in classic, if we, if we're five people and we need to get eight 
Defias bandanas or whatever. We need to get 40 Defias bandanas because only one will have a percent chance to drop, which means like the five of us are going to be slaying hundreds of ba- of Defias to try and get the 40 bandanas that like we all need. And it's just like, Jesus fucking Christ, this stuff is like, is brutal. I also find the gameplay exceedingly boring. There is no rotation in classic. Um, so like you just you just like if shadow bolt is your best spell you just spam shadow bolt you know what i mean like there's no there's no like procs or you know stuff with cooldowns or anything like all of that kind of like more advanced stuff uh doesn't really exist in the game but like also the pulls are much more tactical because like pulling two or three mobs is like a one-way ticket to death so you are kind of tactically moving through the you know, like, moving through the area to try and get, like, only the number of pulls that are kind of, like, necessary and practical. Um, and so, yeah, like, that whole thing, it's 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 interesting. Uh, and, I don't know, there's a, there's a lot to this, like, retail uh, classic stuff that I find really, like, really fun and engaging. The thing that I actually detest the most is any and all version of retail is better than classic classic is better than retail this will happen all the time because like people in trade chat will be like shitting on retail and then everybody starts spamming classic good retail bad upvotes to the left which has become this <laughs> meme for some reason it's a great which is a meme from wow circle jerk right like the wow circle <laughs> jerk subreddit but like there are a lot of i'm surprised that the there are a lot of fights breaking out because there are people who play retail and are raiding as Shara or whatever but they're stopping off like wow like this describes me right they're stopping off in classic um and they get really pissed when like the classic diehards who hate retail with a vengeance now or whatever else um you know start shitting on it uh i mean what, what did you expect it's the internet everybody was bound to have an opinion it is the internet, strong yeah. opinion <sighs> yeah. oh also the uh the gold uh the gold sellers are, are are hitting and i'm so happy to see it just i love seeing like pvp like what you know whatever it is like oh like wow pvp net gold net or whatever um which took him a week. It took him a week to get there. Good job. Good yeah, job, well, you need to get the gold to sell. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Man. That is superior in classic, not in classic, in retail, just because of, like, the tokens. Like, let me legally buy your way to take more gold. Yeah. Uh, that is the number one way to get uh, gold sellers out of your game, is to, because, like, go. You know, gold selling is a hassle, right? And there's a lot of risk to it, right? Like buying gold, buying power level services, like all these other kinds of things will uh like there's a there's a chance that you're going to get um your account hacked or whatever. And so uh buying a boost from Blizzard to get to level 110 or whatever it is is just like much safer. Buying a token off of the auction house is just like not like it is inside of you it is inside of the client. You know what I mean? You just go to the auction house, you search up the token, the token is worth that much gold and you pay for it kind of thing. Um, so, you know, it's just like the, the, the best way that they got rid of that piracy was just kind of like to legalize it to a certain extent. Yeah. It makes, makes sense. Uh, Greg, you have anything else you want to talk about from your, your like, here doesn't have to be games can be like, like any, any like, 
or series that you saw that you were particularly hype on? Um, well, I touched on Mandy before. It was probably like my Um, I watched Euphoria. It was the last show I watched that had like some really good moments in it. Overall, I didn't love it, but that's a whole dive into. Um, it's been a long time, so I'm trying to think of what, what, what jumps out of me. Uh, Letter Kenny from Asper Legos Rec, which I adored that show. Super funny. Um, I recently learned that um. Two- Characters in it are the creators and directors of it, which oh, makes really? Yeah, um, uh, main character, um, big guy, the big guy, uh, wow, he's one of the writers and directors, and same with Glenn, the, the priest. Okay, oh, uh, okay, yeah, uh, which is super funny. What it's not Wayne, okay, it's Wayne. Wayne. It's Wayne and Glenn are the two, which is funny because those are the kind of the most like out there characters, and like, and they're those are the two guys, like, really. Hearts and souls into it to make that show. Fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I really like Squirrely Dan. I think the the moment that's the thing, the clip that I saw that sold me on the show was Squirrely Dan um, yelling, "This is not there." I said it, and just like running, like starting to like run across the field, and, like getting like fifteen steps and being like, ah, ah, and be like, and then like just like gambling back. It's like it just like it's just such a such a fucking funny show. I love it. I highly recommend it to anybody out there. And it's one of those things where it's like they talk in this dialect that's like you know definitely lean into, but it has some like Canadian slang that like you know, it's, it's foreign to me. I think I've watched that whole series. I think I've watched it like three times now, like four times, and every time I watch, it, I get more out of it because you, like you players. Um, I feel like it's kind of like the inheritor to trailer for Park Boys, kind of like. Right? Oh yeah, what? Are, what how did or you push it to me? You said that it's a postmodern trailer Park Boys, and I was like, sign me up. I'm there. No, <laughs> <laughs> that's um, funny. I really didn't like Trailer Park Boys. I watched maybe the first season, first couple. It episodes. took me a long time to buy into Trailer Park Boys. All my friends were like, "This show's amazing," and I think it was like, I don't know, like the the must have been like the twentieth or thirtieth times when we put it on. I had to sit through it. I was like, "Oh, I get it. Nothing happens. Yeah. Not about what's <laughs> happening." <laughs> yeah, I mean, like part of, me, part of me thinks that it's just like, like you know, I go nuts for like the Kroll show or whatever. And part of me thinks it's like that's just like. The way everybody else looks at the Kroll show versus how I look at the Kroll show must be how it is. Because, <laughs> like, I just can't, I just, like, haven't been able to get into it. I just love the weird expressions. I have this, like, good, bad habit, I guess, of taking funny lines or things that I find funny from Star Park Boys and Cyber Kenny and saying them to people. And sometimes they don't get the reference. And sometimes they just think I'm fucking stupid. <laughs> this, like, short spree where I just kept saying, <laughs> worst case, Ontario. One of Ricky's lines from Star Park Boys, like I just stuck, and I just kept saying, it. and I said it in an email once, um, and somebody pulled me aside at work. I said it in a work email, like you know, my job's <laughs> relaxed, it's fine. They're like, you like, you know, it's worst case scenario, right? And I was just like, oh man, like it's one hundred percent a reference that you didn't get, and I promise you, I'm not as stupid as you think I am. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's like, they're both great shows. Letter Kenny, I, I like Letter Kenny a lot more than I like Trevor. Yeah, I, I feel like it's also a little bit more approachable in that, like, in kind of that way. Like, it's obvious, like, you can watch the old open, uh, like, where, like, the, like, the, the, like, the, the non-fight with, uh, with yeah. the, with the hockey goons, right? Yeah. Like, you can watch that and, like, 
get why that show is so popular. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, but yeah, I, I feel like we're we at about at the end of this. Did you have anything else you want to talk about? No, I have covered everything. All right. Well, in that case, uh, if you would like to email us, tell us what you thought about What's Upon a Time in Hollywood or any of the other things we talked about on the show, email us at subdurbsplaygames at gmail.com or, uh, or email us at subdurbsplaygames or podcast at subdurbsplaygames.com. There we go. I can remember our address. Uh, support us at patreon.com slash subdurbsplaygames if you feel like it. Join, uh, uh, join Heroes, Monic, and Paul um, in, in supporting the show. Uh, what else? Uh, you can follow us at twitch.tv slash subdurbsplaygames. I think that's everything I had. Uh, Greg, did you want to uh, promote anything while you were here? Um, yeah, if you guys need a cinematographer, if any of you out there like working on film, uh, gregtango.com or gregtango.com, you can up and uh, movies. Uh, otherwise, you know. And buddy, what, do you have anything else you want to promote? I do have something that I need to actually promote and need to want to promote. Um, if anybody out there is a fan artist... The Akupara Games' uh, newest game, Mutazione, which I've talked about a little bit on the cast, is hosting a fan creation content contest. Uh, anybody that enters is uh, given a chance to win a game key for the game when it releases a little bit later this uh, this year. Just make anything Mutazione related. You can look up uh, at facebook.com slash Akupara Games. There's a whole album just full of all of the stuff that we have published about Mutazione so far to give you a little bit of inspiration. So if that appeals to any and all of you, please uh, feel free to give it a shot. All right. Excellent. Well, if that's it, um, I'm going to say until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners.